Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. I'm Gordon Comstock. I'm going to get into another book. Now, uh, it's actually a, a long essay, rather, and it's online. You can access this for free, and uh, all the other works by this extremely assiduous researcher off of his website uh, for free, and uh, they're worth more than probably one of his essays is probably worth more than any other book on your uh, bookshelf, seriously. And yet you can access this for free. I uh, printed up all of his essays and uh, have them uh, arranged like books on just on regular printer paper, one-sided, because my printer only does one-sided, but I've got them all on my bookshelf. Uh, they are a prized possession, really. Uh, I can't, I want to say I can't believe what this researcher found out and his cohort found the same thing out independently, and they're both, they both share the same website. Uh, I originally didn't believe it. It took some prodding from my good buddy Visigoth to convince me, because I started to have one of those knee-jerk reactions again. When I first heard this stuff, I thought, come on, this is baloney, this is crazy. Same reaction I had when I heard the stuff about the Vatican uh, murdering, at the, at being at the top of the conspiracy to murder Abraham Lincoln and uh, all of our other presidents who've ever been poisoned. I had that same knee-jerk, purely emotional reaction that, that blocks out your intellectual process. And doggone it, it's the same reaction that your average Joe has when you tell him anything truthful that's not in the mainstream news, and that's basically anything truthful. And then they jump to that knee-jerk, purely emotional, anti-intellectual, anti-cerebral reaction, and they tell you, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. Yeah, I've, uh, and that just shows how much he's brainwashed, yada, yada, yada. But uh, I had that a couple of times. I, 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 even after I was mostly, I would say, awakened to the reality of the world around us. And it took uh, Visigoth both times to uh, take me aside and say, bro, you need to do the homework before you make a decision on this. Don't just make a decision out of ignorance, basically. And coming from a guy like that, uh, that really brought me up short. And I went and did the research. And I found out the guy, oh man, it was true, and it was true, and it's, the wizard is behind the curtain, and the wizard is more, more mysterious and elaborate and larger than life, and that wizard behind the curtain gets bigger all the time. Wow. 
Another thing Visigoth and I have noticed, though, together, very, very few people, even amongst those who listen to folks like us and, and, and come on our shows and write books and, and show they're mostly awake, they, they know the reality of the world, that the whole world lies in delusion. Nevertheless, even those people, when they come across something that's too outrageous, they shut down, just like I started to do, and, and Biz helped me through both times. People just shut down, and, and, and they can't deal with it, and they, they dismiss it, it just out of pure emotions and complete lack of gray matter. So it, that even happens, and it's happened a few times with former guests of mine and Biz, and we just kind of let those people go their ignorant way until they wake up because they wouldn't listen to us. They wouldn't stop their emotional reaction and do their homework. And uh, anyway, uh, I think I I mentioned last month there were a couple of listeners who came up and visited me, and we had uh, black and tans and cigars and at, at the local Irish pub here, and it was it was great. It was great uh, talking to two brothers about stuff that uh, men are too damn ignorant to know anymore. The truth, men in America. But it, but uh, one of them alerted me and uh, sent since then uh, sent me the link to a book. I'm gonna get, and I I had planned on getting into that book with the next one. I'm gonna get to that book uh, next after this one because that book does appear very significant. Now that's a real book. That's that's a good sized book and, and it's out of print from the 1800s. And uh, boy, he knows what it is and it's, it deals with familiar subject matter to the show and all of that. But anyway, with this book, with this essay. I need to read this. This guy is actually this uh, researcher. His name is James Montgomery. He and his researching cohort, the Informer, independently, completely uh, for the for years prior to having met, at least, they uh, came to the same conclusion from years of. Uh, very painstaking research in law libraries and uh, places, university libraries, I suppose. But they, researching old documents, they, they basically proved that the, as the title of this essay tells, the United States is still a British colony. And uh, this guy, James Montgomery, you, you go to A.T gpress.com. It stands for againsttheGrainPress.com. Click on, well, you can click on the informer. He tells you the same stuff through a lot of essays. Uh, I prefer, and the same stuff, that's right. I prefer clicking on knowledge is freedom, uh, and then you get to the work of this guy, James Montgomery. James Montgomery is uh, noticeably better at editing. Uh, both of them could use a, a proofreader and editor because they didn't have one, and any any person who writes a book, uh, whether anybody, you, you need an editor. But when you're a small-time, one-horse operation, and, and you're writing, that's all you, you got yourself. And so there's going to be type errors, there's going to be grammatical errors, uh, and there's a few here with James Montgomery. I just found that there's a lot with uh, the informer, and it, at times, although his research is impeccable, it makes it hard to read. Uh, 
I know the informer harps on the importance of diagramming sentences in school, and uh, I don't know, it's a little hypocritical because he doesn't really write that well. He can't diagram his own sentences, basically, as he's writing them. Uh, anyway, he means well. His research is fantastic. He needs help in his writing, the informer. James Montgomery is a little more clear. Um, he's a better writer, basically. They're both about the same as far as uh, researching power, researching depth. Now, and both of them have written numerous articles, numerous long essays documenting all of this. This is just one, and it's entitled, again, The United States is Still a British Colony. Uh, this Maybe this is Maybe it's just the title that makes this essay jump out the most at, at the online viewer. Nevertheless, all of the articles on there, click on, go to atgpress.com, click on Knowledge is Freedom, read the research articles of James Montgomery. There's wealth of materials there, and they all are fantastic and in-depth. And guess what? They're all irrefutable. Trust me. <laughs> you'll find out. You'll you'll. you'll Get the upset stomach. You'll, you'll get nauseated. You've been lied to, folks. The United States is still a British colony. And so this is the essay we are going to get into on the Ministry of Truth. Now, the reason I want to take a detour and read this, I didn't plan on reading this uh, next, but I've been hearing people close to me people I trust, people who are dear friends of mine, companions, cohorts, and brothers in the faith of mine who I hear them starting to appeal to the Constitution again. And that troubles me because they have heard some of this material. So I decided, well, you obviously haven't read it in any depth, or else you would not be appealing to the Constitution, even though you've been told a number of times now by the legendary Visigoth and, and myself that uh, the Constitution was a fraud, a total fraud. The Founding Fathers were lawyers, they were liars, they were frauds. They sold out their own people. The United States, the colonies, never won the Revolutionary War. It was a backdoor Masonic deal to limit the battle damage, make it look like a war, and keep the profits going for England and for the wealthy, elitist, lawyerly families like the founding quote-unquote fathers in the colonies and basically, the, really, the reason it appeared for so long that Americans had these rights and so-called rights and freedoms for so long, for first a few decades anyway, after the Revolutionary War, it was mostly to do with geography, folks. It, it was not in the documents of the Constitution. The Constitution does not apply to the common man, as we're about to find out. Not even the Declaration of Independence applies the common man, as we are about to find out. And if you go back in history, things like even the Magna Carta, they're worthless documents. 
They're worth about the same as a toilet paper roll, the Magna Carta was. Completely worthless. James Montgomery will show you. He documents it. For one thing, this uh, King John that was forced by the nobles in England to sign the Magna Carta. Well, the Pope immediately uh, declared the Magna Carta null and void. And uh, King John, by the way, a few years prior had given England to the Pope. So it wasn't, England was not King John's to give away to these barons, these noblemen, forcing at sword point the Magna Carta upon King John. Uh, and, and here, oh, there you go. It's also, it's a document signed under duress. And even today, we know a document signed under duress is not a legal document. So the Magna Carta was worthless. Basically, folks, here, here's, here's the... Here it is in a nutshell. I hope I can get it down to that. Folks, the common man, you have no rights except for those that Jesus Christ gave you as a saved soul, but he liberated your soul if you will take the uh, sacrifice, take, take, take the opportunity he gave you. But you're not, your body is not going to have any actual rights until Jesus Christ returns and rules the earth with a rod of iron. Until then, everything you have that you think are rights, they are actually privileges. And that we, we've, we're in slavery. We always have been. And it's, it's just this, it's remarkable that even people who get it, even people who are very close to me, who know that everything's a fraud around us, the whole world lies in a strong delusion that because of our sinful ways, God has given us over unto. And Satan loves deceiving the whole world, and Revelation tells us that. He's got the whole world deluded, does Satan. And everything on your mainstream news, flip it upside down if you want the truth. 9-11 was a fraud. The Oklahoma City bombings was a fraud. Flight uh, Korean airline 007 that was shot down in Russia was a fraud. Nothing... Uh, TWA uh, 800 that was shot down off the coast of what, New Jersey. That was a fraud. Pearl Harbor, the Lusitania, the, the, bomb, the, the explosion of the Maine, the Gulf of Tonkin, on and on and on. The, the stock market crash, the Federal Reserve. Even people who know that all of those are frauds and, if, and the truth is completely almost completely reverse what mainstream news tells us, even those who get it and are, and are Christian, even those, and, and they've been guests on my show, <laughs> really, except for Biz, uh, they all still will hearken back occasionally to this Constitution as being somehow a fount of, of liberty for Americans, and they don't know that it's completely faulty. They, they should know better, basically, is what I'm trying to say, because the Constitution, you're still dealing there with man's law. It's weird. The propaganda you're fed in school about the, the founding fathers, the framers of the Constitution, it's like people who really get it, 
and you know, already you're in rarefied company if you get it and you understand that, that history is a fraud. And then, if you understand that the Bible, that God's word is true, the real God's word. I mean, you're, there aren't very many people who do that, but once you get to that point, it's weird. Even those people will still latch on. They'll say, yeah, all history's been a fraud, basically. And the only thing we can trust is God's true word. However, there was this one time in history, this one completely atypical time, when you had a few honorable lawyer, lawyers get together in, the, in colonial America and, and write this wonderful document to set mankind free. That was the one time when mankind became noble. The one time when, when no, lawyers became noble. That was it, the one time. And they would, come on, doesn't that right there, the picture I just painted, all of mankind's history, all of mankind's laws, it's all about tyranny and profits is what it's really all about, profits. But there was this one time when it, that didn't apply, the, <laughs> the, the U.S. Revolution, the Revolutionary War and the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. That was the one time where mankind became noble, give Stop and think about that. Would the Lord really allow that to happen? Allow there to be one time in history where humans, where elitist humans suddenly became not elitist and, and became truthful and told the truth and weren't about prophets and wanted to rule a country not about prophets. They weren't driven just by prophets. They wanted to be truthful as God's word is truthful. Do you think God would really allow that to happen? No. All of mankind's history. And when the Constitution, oh, it was set up a Calvinist republic. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. How many times does it mention Jesus Christ in the document? Zero. Okay, how many times does, it, uh, does the Declaration of Independence mention Jesus Christ? Zero. Okay. But it mentions God uh, and Lord. Well, gee, the, the founding framers were mostly Freemasons, and the Freemasons have their God and Lord, who is actually the ancient Baal deity. And they now call him the great architect of the universe. But it's no different than ancient Bel or Baal worship. It's, it's just amazing. It's so frustrating. Well, anyway, that's why, belatedly, I'm, t- I'm telling you, I'm finally getting to the point. This is why I have to read this. You, folks, you need to listen. If you have any faith in the Constitution, stop and listen to this, please. I took the trouble of doing my homework in this area. I took the trouble of spending my paper, money on paper and ink, printing all of this up, these voluminous essays from both the informer and James Montgomery. It fills up half a bookshelf, half a long bookshelf on, in my, in my uh, office room that's running out of room. And I read them all, and I highlighted them all. As I read, I made notes on them all, and I'm telling you, even if you just listen, stop what you're doing, and listen to just this one article by James Montgomery, you'll be totally convinced it's irrefutable. 
The Constitution was a fraud. The founding framers were lawyers. They were frauds. The Declaration of Independence did not ever apply to the common American, you and me. It was a corporate deal, a Masonic corporate backdoor lawyer deal. And the United States is still a British colony. Written, this was written in 1996 by James Montgomery. The trouble with history is we weren't there when it took place and it can be changed to fit someone's belief and or traditions. Or it can be taught in the public schools to favor a political agenda and withhold many facts. I know you have been taught that we won the Revolutionary War and defeated the British, but I can prove to the contrary. I want you to read this paper with an open mind and allow yourself to be instructed with the following verifiable facts. You be the judge, and don't let prior conclusions on your part or incorrect teaching keep you from the truth. I, too, was always taught in school and in studying our history books that our freedom came from the Declaration of Independence and was secured by our winning the Revolutionary War. I'm going to discuss a few documents that are included at the end of this paper in the footnotes. The first document is the first charter of Virginia in 1606, see footnote one. In the first paragraph, the King of England granted our forefathers license to settle and colonize America. The definition for license is as follows, from Bouvier's Law Dictionary, 1914, quote, in government regulation, authority to do some act or carry on some trade or business, in its nature lawful, but prohibited by statute, except with the permission of the civil authority, or which would otherwise be unlawful, unquote. Keep in mind, those that came to America from England were British subjects. So you can better understand what I'm going to tell you. Here are the definitions for subject and citizen. Again, Bouvier's Law Dictionary, 1914. Quote, in monarchical governments, by subject is meant one who owes permanent allegiance to the monarch, unquote. The following is from the fifth edition of Black's Law Dictionary, quote, constitutional law, one that owes allegiance to a sovereign and is governed by his laws. The natives of Great Britain are subjects of the British government. Men in free governments are subjects as well as citizens. As citizens, they enjoy rights and franchises as subjects, they are bound to obey the laws. The term is little used in this sense 
in countries enjoying a republican form of government, unquote. I chose to give the definition for subject first, so you could better understand what definition of citizen is really being used in American law. Below is the definition of citizen from Roman law, from Bouvier's Law Dictionary, 1914. Quote, the term citizen was used in Rome to indicate the possession of private civil rights, including those accruing under the Roman family and inheritance law, and the Roman contract and property law. All other subjects were peregrines. But in the beginning of the third century, the distinction was abolished, and all subjects were citizens." Unquote. The king was making a commercial venture when he sent his subjects to America and used his money and resources to do so. I think you would admit the king had a lawful right to receive gain and prosper from his venture. In the Virginia Charter, he declares his sovereignty over the land and his subjects, and in paragraph 9, he declares the amount of gold, silver, and copper he is to receive, if any, is found by his subjects. There could have just as easily been none, or his subjects could have been killed by the Indians. This is why this was a valid right of the king. See Black's fourth edition. Jure Corine, quote, in the right of the crown, unquote. The king expended his resources with the risk of total loss. If you'll notice in paragraph 9, the king declares that all his heirs and successors were to also receive the same amount of gold, silver, and copper that he claimed with this charter. The gold that remained in the colonies was also the king's. He provided the remainder as a benefit for his subjects, which amounted to further use of his capital. You will see in this paper that not only is this valid, but it is still in effect today. If you will read the rest of the Virginia Charter, you will see that the king declared the right and exercised the power to regulate every aspect of commerce in his new colony. A license had to be granted for travel connected with transfer of goods, i.e. commerce, right down to the furniture they sat on. A great deal of the king's declared property was ceded to America in the Treaty of 1783. I want you to stay focused on the money and the commerce which was not ceded to America. This brings us to the Declaration of Independence. 
our freedom was declared because the king did not fulfill his end of the covenant between king and subject. The main complaint was taxation without representation, which was reaffirmed in the early 1606 charter granted by the king. It was not a revolt over being subject to the king of England. Most wanted the protection and benefits provided by the king. Because of the king's refusal to hear their demands and grant relief, separation from England became the lesser of two evils. The cry of freedom and self-determination became the rallying cry for the colonists. The slogan, Don't Tread on Me, was the standard borne by the militias. The Revolutionary War was fought and concluded when Cornwallis surrendered to Washington at Yorktown. As Americans, we have been taught that we defeated the king and won our freedom. The next document I will use is the Treaty of 1783, which will totally contradict our having won the Revolutionary War. See footnote 2. I want you to notice in the first paragraph that the king refers to himself as prince of the Holy Roman Empire and of the United States. You know from this that the United States did not negotiate this treaty of peace in a position of strength and victory, but it is obvious that Benjamin Franklin, John Jay, and John Adams negotiated a treaty of further granted privileges from the King of England. Keep this in mind as you study these documents. You also need to understand the players of those that negotiated this treaty. For the Americans, it was Benjamin Franklin Esquire, a great patriot and standard bearer of freedom. Or was he? His title includes Esquire. An Esquire, in the above usage, was a granted rank and title of nobility by the king, which is below knight and above a yeoman or common man. An esquire is someone that does not do manual labor as signified by this status. See the below definitions from Blackstone's commentaries, quote, Esquires, by virtue of their offices, as justices of the peace, and others who bear any office of trust under the crown, for whosoever studieth the laws of the realm, who studieth in the universities, who professeth the liberal sciences, and who can live idly and without manual labor, and will bear the port, charge, and countenance of a gentleman, he shall be called master, and he shall be taken for a gentleman." Unquote. Following is from Black's Law Dictionary, 4th edition. Quote, Esquire, 
in English law, a title of dignity next above gentleman and below knight. Also, a title of office given to sheriffs, sergeants, and barristers at law, justices of the peace, and others, unquote. Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and John Jay, as you can read in the treaty, were all esquires and were the signers of this treaty and the only negotiators of the treaty. The representative of the king was David Hartley, Esquire. Benjamin Franklin was the main negotiator for the terms of the treaty. He spent most of the war traveling between England and France. The use of Esquire declared his and the others British subjection and loyalty to the crown. In the first article of the treaty, most of the king's claims to America are relinquished, except for his claim to continue receiving gold, silver, and copper as gain for his business venture. Article 3 gives Americans the right to fish the waters around the United States and its rivers. In Article 4, the United States agreed to pay all bona fide debts. If you will read my other papers on money, you will understand that the financiers were working with the king. Why else would he protect their interest with this treaty? Side note, boy, does that ever dovetail with the last book I just completed, The Babylonian Woe by David Astle, where Astle was always uh, remarking on the, the shadowy powers the true the powers behind this, the throne, the money powers are always there in any civilization. They're the real powers, but you never see them or you seldom see them. <clears throat> but the front man, whatever king or tyrant they put forth, will always look, look out for them, will always protect them. And here we go, the king of England protecting their interests in the Treaty of uh, 1783. Okay. I wonder if you have seen the main and obvious point. This treaty was signed in 1783. The war was over in 1781. If the United States defeated England, how is the King of England granting rights to America when we were now supposedly his equal in status? We supposedly defeated him in the Revolutionary War. So why would these supposed patriot Americans sign such a treaty when they knew that this would void any sovereignty gained by the Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary War? If we had won the Revolutionary War, the king granting us our land would not be necessary. It would have been ours by his loss of the Revolutionary War. To not dictate the terms of a peace treaty in a position of strength, 
after winning a war means the war was never won. Think of other wars we have won, such as when we defeated Japan. Did General MacArthur allow Japan to dictate to him the terms for surrender? No way. All these men, these quote-unquote founding fathers, all they did is gain status and privilege granted by the king and ensure the subjection of future unaware generations. Worst of all, they sold out those that gave their lives and property for the chance to be free. You know, that, that totally ties in today with the wars going on overseas, the wars for empire in Afghanistan and Iraq. Who's largely, foolishly, <laughs> pathetically sending their boys off to be, and now they're girls, and now they're daughters. How, how, oh, how tragically, how insultingly the ignorance, the shamefulness of it. But who's sending their children off to be cannon fodder nowadays? Oh, it's the patriotic Americans who call themselves Christians by and large, isn't it? Come on, you know you've met them. Come on, they've got flags up on their cars, and they quote that they have a constitution that they've never read, and they've got a Bible that they've never read, but boy, they're Christians and they're patriot Americans, aren't they? And they're sending their boys and now girls overseas to be cannon fodder. Well, guess what? You hear these stories uh, in the Revolutionary War of, uh, what was it, the Black Brigade? The, the preachers in the colonies who led up the militias and, and had... Uh, called out the militias and the Minutemen to, uh, to go fight the British, and they did a stellar job on the battlefield. What they did was totally brave. However, they were also completely sold out, and what they, it accomplished nothing because they were sold out at the top. And so even you see back then Christians picking up the sword, picking up the rifle to go and fight, and all it gets them is killed and sold out and taken advantage of back then because their, their leaders back then sold them out, and it's still happening today. Foolish Christians or people calling themselves Christians are fighting the battles of the oligarchs. They're fighting the battles of the enemy, of Satan, and yet they're Christian, at least calling themselves Christian. And maybe, well, I'm sure some of them, a lot of them are. Anyway, history doesn't change. Think of your redneck Christian over there fighting, fighting for democracy and liberty in Afghanistan. That's what you had fighting the revolution, in the Revolutionary War. Then, anyway, here we go. Back to the essay. When Cornwallis surrendered to Washington, he surrendered the battle, folks, but he did not surrender the war. Read the article of capitulation signed by Cornwallis at Yorktown. See footnote 3. Jonathan Williams recorded in his book, Legions of Satan, printed in 1781, that Cornwallis revealed to Washington during his surrender that, quote, a holy war will now begin on America, 
and when it is ended, America will be supposedly the citadel of freedom, but her millions will unknowingly be subjects to the crown. In less than 200 years, the whole nation will be working for divine world government. That government that they believe to be divine will be the British Empire, unquote. Wow, was that really written in 1781? Apparently so, folks. All the treaty did was remove the United States as a liability and obligation of the king. He no longer had to ship material and money to support his subjects and colonies. At the same time, he retained financial subjection through debt owed after the treaty, which is still being created today. Millions of dollars a day. And his heirs and successors are still reaping the benefit of the king's original venture. That, folks, that means that in the 1980s, when you saw that big extravagant wedding on all the channels in America of uh, Princess Di's wedding to Prince Charles, uh, I hope you enjoyed that because we paid for it. <laughs> you paid for it, folks. Yes, yes, we'll get to that. <clears throat> we'll get to the proof on that. If you will read the following quote from Title 26, you will see just one situation where the king is still collecting a tax from those that receive a benefit from him on property which is purchased with the money the king supplies at almost the same percentage. Ooh, boy. Next up is uh, some IRS legalese. Should I get into that? Uh, let's give it, get into a little bit. Site 26 USC section 1491, head section 1491, imposition of tax, statute. There is hereby imposed on the transfer of property by a citizen or resident of the United States or by a domestic corporation or partnership or by an estate or trust which is not a foreign estate or trust to a foreign corporation as paid in surplus or as a contribution to capital or to a foreign estate or trust or to a foreign partnership, an excise tax equal to 35% of the excess of one, the fair market value of the property so transferred over two, the sum of A, the adjustment basis for determining gain of such property in the hands of the transferor plus B, the amount of the gain recognized to the transferor at the time of the transfer source. Oh, oh yada, yada, yada. Amendments, yada, yada, yada. All it's legalese. Oh, boy. <laughs> they were, this is it, man. This is why Jesus condemned these people. Writing this parallel bizarro world language that only they can understand and that they twist uh, with situational ethics each time they read it. Vague, abstruse legalese. Let's, uh, effective date, 1976 amendment. Okay, going forward. Here we go. A new war was declared when the treaty was signed. The king wanted his land back and he knew he would 
be able to regain his property for his heirs with the help of his world financiers. Here is a quote from the king speaking to Parliament after the Revolutionary War had concluded. This is six weeks after the capitulation of Yorktown. The king of Britain, in his speech to Parliament, November 27, 1781, declared, quote, that he should not answer the trust committed to the sovereign of a free people if he consented to sacrifice either to his own desire of peace or to their temporary ease and relief those essential rights and permanent interests upon the maintenance and preservation of which the future strength and security of the country must forever depend." The determined language of this speech, pointing to the continuance of the American War, was echoed back by a majority of both Lords and Commons. In a few days after, on December 12th, it was moved in the House of Commons that a resolution should be adopted, declaring it to be their opinion, quote, that all farther attempts to reduce the Americans to obedience by force would be ineffectual and injurious to the true interests of Great Britain, unquote. The rest of the debate can be found in footnote four. What were the true interests of the king, the gold, silver, and copper? The new war was to be fought without Americans being aware that a war was even being waged. It was to be fought by subterfuge and key personnel being placed in key positions. The first two parts of my other essay, A Country Defeated in Victory, that's another great essay James Montgomery wrote, A Country Defeated in Victory, it's about the Revolutionary War, go into detail about how this was done and exposes some of the main players. Every time you pay a tax, you are transferring your labor to the king, and his heirs and successors are still receiving interest from the original American charters. The following is the definition of tribute or tax. Quote, a contribution which is raised by a prince or sovereign from his subjects to sustain the expenses of the state. A sum of money paid by an inferior sovereign or state to a superior potentate to secure the friendship or protection of the latter, unquote. This is from Black's Law Dictionary, 4th edition. As further evidence, not that any is needed, a percentage of taxes that are paid are to enrich the king or queen of England. For those that study Title 26, you will recognize IMF, which means Individual Master File. All taxpayers have one. To receive one, you have to be able to break their codes using File 6209, which is about 467 pages. 
On your IMF, you will find a blocking series which tells you what type of tax you are paying. You will probably find a 300 to 399 blocking series, which 6209 says is reserved. You then look up the BMF 300 to 399, which is the business master file in 6209. You would have seen prior to 1991, this was US slash UK tax claims non-refile DLN, meaning everyone is considered a business and involved in commerce, and you are being held liable for a tax via a treaty between the US and the UK payable to the UK. The form that is supposed to be used for this is Form 8288, FERTA, Foreign Investment Real Property Tax Account. You won't find many people using this form, just the 1040 form. The 8288 form can be found in the Law Enforcement Manual of the IRS, Chapter 3. If you will check the OMB's paper, Office of Management and Budget, in the Department of Treasury, list of active information collections approved under Paperwork Reduction Act, you will find this form under OMB number 1545-0902, which says, U.S. withholding tax return for dispositions by foreign persons of U.S. real property interests statement of withholding on dispositions by foreign persons of U.S. form number 8288, number 8288A. These codes have since been changed to read as follows. IMF 300-309, Barred Assessment, CP55, Generated Valid for MFT30, which is the code for 1040 form. IMF310 to 399 reserved. The BMF300 to 309 reads the same as IMF300 to 309. BMF390 to 399 reads US slash UK tax treaty claims. The long and short of it is nothing's changed. The government just made it plainer. The 1040 is the payment of a foreign tax to the king or queen of England. We have been in financial servitude since the treaty of 1780. Three. Read them and weep, folks. Read them and weep. Another treaty between England and the United States was Jay's Treaty of 1794, footnote 5. If you will remember from the Paris Treaty of 1783, John J. Esquire was one of the negotiators of the treaty. In 1794, he negotiated another treaty with Britain. There was great controversy among the American people about 
this treaty. In Article 2, you will see the king is still on land that was supposed to be ceded to the United States at the Paris Treaty. This is 13 years after America supposedly won the Revolutionary War. I guess someone forgot to tell the King of England. In Article 6, the King is still dictating terms to the United States concerning the collection of debts and damages. The British government and world bankers claimed that we owe. In Article 12, we find the King dictating terms again this time concerning where and with who the United States could trade. In Article 18, the United States agrees to a wide variety of material that would be subject to confiscation if Britain found said material going to its enemy's ports. Wait a minute. Who won the Revolutionary War? That's right. We were conned by some of our early forefathers into believing that we are free, that we are a sovereign people, when in fact we had the same status as before the Revolutionary War. I say had because our status today is far worse now than then. I will explain. Early on in our history, the king was satisfied with the interest made by the Bank of the United States. But when the bank charter was canceled in 1811, it was time to gain control of the government in order to shape government policy and public policy. Have you never asked yourself why the British, after burning the White House and all our early records during the War of 1812, why they left and did not take over the government? The reason they did, as much as they did do, was to remove the greatest barrier to their plans for this country. That barrier was the newly adopted 13 Amendment to the United States Constitution. The purpose for this amendment was to stop anyone from serving in the government who was receiving a title of nobility or honor. It was and is obvious that these government employees would be loyal to the grantor of the title of nobility or honor. The War of 1812 served several purposes. It delayed the passage of the 13th Amendment by Virginia, allowed the British to destroy the evidence of the first 12 states' ratification of this amendment, and it increased the national debt, which would coerce Congress to reestablish the bank charter in 1816, after the Treaty of Ghent was ratified by the Senate. 
1815. We'll stop there for this time, and we will get into this forgotten amendment, the original 13th Amendment next time, and your heads will flip. You will probably freak out when you hear this. The original 13th Amendment had nothing to do with the 13th Amendment that you know of today. Nothing at all. And it's the real main reason for the War of 1812. This is completely Twilight Zone-ish, erased, memory-hold history you are learning, and it's about to get a whole lot weirder next time on the Ministry of Truth. We have been reading, America is still a British colony by James Montgomery. This has been the Ministry of Truth. I'm Gordon Comstock, over and out. This is the Ministry of Truth. I'm Gordon Comstock. Time for part two of the United States is still a British colony by James Montgomery. The Forgotten Amendment. The Articles of Confederation, Article 6 states, quote, nor shall the United States in Congress assembled, and United is not capitalized, by the way, or any of them grant any title of nobility, unquote. The Constitution for the United States, United not capitalized, in Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8 states, quote, No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, United not capitalized, and no person holding any office or profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of the Congress, accept any of the present emolument, office, or title, or of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state, unquote. Also, Section 10, Clause 1 states, quote, No state shall enter into any treaty, alliance, or confederation, grant letters of marquee or reprisal, coin money, emit bills of credit, make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts, pass any bill of attainder, ex post facto of law impairing the obligation of contracts or grant any title of nobility." Unquote. There was, however, no measurable penalty for violation of the above sections. Congress saw this as a great threat to the freedom of Americans and our Republican form of government. In January 1810, Senator Reed proposed the original 13th Amendment. And it has nothing to do with the 13th Amendment you know of today. The original 13th Amendment, and on April 26, 1810, 
was passed by the Senate 26 to 1 and by the House 87 to 3 on May 1st, 1810 and submitted to the 17 states for ratification. The amendment read as follows, quote, If any citizen of the United States shall accept, claim, receive, or retain any title of nobility or honor, or shall, without the consent of Congress, accept and retain any present pension, office, or emolument of any kind, whatever, from any emperor, king, prince, or foreign power, such person shall cease to be a citizen of the United States and shall be incapable of holding any office of trust or profit under them or either of them. Unquote. From an American Dictionary of the English Language, first edition by Noah Webster, 1828, the definition of nobility is... The third definition, the quality, quote, the qualities which constitute distinction of rank in civil society according to the customs or laws of the country, that eminence or dignity which a man derives from birth or title conferred and which places him in an order above common men. And the fourth definition, the persons collectively who enjoy rank above commoners i.e. the peerage, unquote. The aforementioned sections in the Constitution for the United States and the above proposed 13th Amendment sought to prohibit the above definition, which would give any advantage or privilege to some citizens an unequal opportunity to achieve or exercise political power. 13 of the 17 states listed below understood the importance of this amendment. The following states voted for the amendment between the years 1810 and 1819. How is that possible? Well, anyway, Maryland, Kentucky, Ohio, Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Vermont, Tennessee, Georgia, North Carolina, Massachusetts, New Hampshire and Virginia all voted in favor of the original 13th Amendment, with four states against New York, Connecticut, South Carolina, Rhode Island. Huh. Okay. On March 10th, 1819, the Virginia legislature passed Act Number 280. Virginia Archives of Richmond Miscellaneous File, page 299 for microfilm. This guy did his homework. He's looking at microfilm in the legal law archives of the state. Okay, the following quote. Be it enacted by the General Assembly that there shall be published an edition of the laws of this commonwealth in which shall be contained the following matters, that is to say, the Constitution of the United States and the amendments thereto, unquote. And United is not capitalized. The official day of ratification was March 12, 1819. 
This was the date of republication of the Virginia Civil Code. Virginia ordered 4,000 copies, almost triple their usual order. Word of Virginia's 1819 ratification spread throughout the states. And both Rhode Island and Kentucky published the new amendment in 1822. Ohio published the new amendment in 1824. Maine ordered 10,000 copies of the Constitution with the new amendment to be printed for use in the public schools, and again in 1831 for their census edition. Indiana published the new amendment in the Indiana Revised Laws of 1831 on page 20. The Northwest Territories published the new amendment in 1833. Ohio published the new amendment again in 1831 and in 1833. Connecticut, one of the states that voted against the new amendment, published the new amendment in 1835. Wisconsin Territory published the new amendment in 1839. Iowa Territory published the new amendment in 1843. Ohio published the new amendment again in 1848. Kansas published the new amendment in 1855, and Nebraska Territory published the new amendment six years in a row from 1855 to 1860. Colorado Territory published the new amendment in 1865 and again 1867. In the 1867 printing, the present 13th amendment, the Slavery Amendment, was listed as the 14th Amendment. The repeated reprinting of the amended United States Constitution is conclusive evidence of its passage. Also, as evidence of the new 13th Amendment's impending passage, on December 2nd, 1817, John Quincy Adams then Secretary of State wrote to Buck, an attorney, regarding the position Buck had been assigned. The letter reads, quote, If it should be the opinion of this government that the acceptance on your part of the commission under which it was granted did not interfere with your citizenship. It is the opinion of the executive that under the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, by the acceptance of such an appointment from any foreign government, a citizen of the United States ceases to enjoy that character and becomes incapable of holding any office of trust or profit under the United States or either of them. Unquote from John Quincy Adams. By virtue of these titles and honors and special privileges, lawyers have assumed political and economic advantages over the majority of citizens. Do you ever wonder, folks, why all of Congress are lawyers? This is why. And they've flushed the original 13th Amendment down the memory hole. That was the amendment that would have stripped them of their citizenship and got them thrown out of this country. 
they have the nobility, the title of nobility as an esquire, which shows their allegiance to the king of England. Back to the, the essay. A majority may vote, but only a minority, lawyers, may run for political office today. After the War of 1812 was concluded, the Treaty of Ghent was signed and ratified, see footnote 6. In Article 4 of the treaty, the United States gained what was already given in the Treaty of Paris in 1783, namely, islands off the U.S. coast. Also, two men were to be given the power to decide the borders and disagreements. If they could not, the power was to be given to an outside sovereign power, and their decision was final and considered conclusive. In Article 9, it is admitted there are citizens and subjects in America. As you have seen, the two terms are interchangeable, synonymous. In Article 10, you will see where the idea for the overthrow of this country came from and on what issue. The issue raised by England was slavery, and it was nurtured by the king's emissaries behind the scenes. This would finally lead to the Civil War, even though the Supreme Court had declared the state's and their citizens' property rights could not be infringed on by the United States government or Congress. This was further declared by the following presidential quotes, where they declared to violate the state's rights would violate the U.S. Constitution. Also, history shows that slavery would not have existed much longer in the southern states. Public sentiment was changing and slavery was quickly disappearing. The Civil War was about destroying property rights and the U.S. Constitution, which supported these rights. Read the following quotes of presidents just before the Civil War. Quote, I believe that involuntary servitude, as it exists in different states of this confederacy, is recognized by the Constitution. I believe that it stands like any other admitted right and that the states where it exists are entitled to efficient remedies to enforce the constitutional provisions. That's from Franklin Pierce's inaugural address, 1853, unquote. Quote, the whole territorial question being thus settled upon the principle of popular sovereignty a principle as ancient as free government itself, everything of a practical nature has been decided. No other question remains for adjustment, because all agree that under the Constitution, slavery in the states is beyond the reach of any human power except that of the respective states themselves wherein it exists. Unquote that from James Buchanan's inaugural address, 1857. Quote, I cordially congratulate you upon the final settlement by the Supreme Court of the United States of the question of slavery in the territories, which had presented an aspect so truly formidable at the commencement of my administration. The right 
has been established of every citizen to take his property of any kind, including slaves, into the common territories belonging equally to all the states of the Confederacy, and to have it protected there under the federal Constitution. Neither Congress nor a territorial legislature, nor any human power, has any authority to annul or impair this vested right. The Supreme Judicial Tribunal of the country, which is a coordinate branch of the government, has sanctioned and affirmed these principles of constitutional law, so manifestly just in themselves and so well calculated to promote peace and harmony among the states, unquote, that from James Buchanan's third annual message, 1859. So there is no misunderstanding. I am not re-arguing slavery. Slavery is morally wrong and contrary to God's almighty law. In this divisive issue, the true attack was on our natural rights and on the Constitution. The core of the attack was on our right to possess allodial property. Our God-given right to own property in allodial was taken away by conquest of the Civil War. If you are free, this right cannot be taken away. The opposite of free is slave or subject. We were allowed to believe we were free for about 70 years. Then the king said, enough, and had the slavery issue pushed to the front by the northern press, which so formed northern public opinion, that they were willing to send their sons to die in the Civil War. The southern states were not fighting so much for the slave issue, but for the right to own property, any property. These property rights were granted by the king in the Treaty of 1783, knowing they would soon be forfeited by the American people through ignorance. Do you think you own your house? If you were to stop paying taxes, federal or state, you would soon find out that you were just being allowed to live and pay rent for this house. The rent being taxes to the king, who supplied the benefit of commerce. A free man, not under a monarch, democracy, dictatorship, or socialist government, but is under a Republican form of government, would not, and could not, have his property taken. Why? The king's tax would not and could not be levied. If the Americans had been paying attention, the first 70 years, to the subterfuge and corruption of the Constitution and government representatives, instead of chasing the money supplied by the king, the conquest of this country during the Civil War could have been avoided. George Washington had vision during the Revolutionary War concerning the Civil War. You need to read it. See footnote 7. Civil War and the Conquest that Followed The government and press propaganda that the war was to free the black people from slavery is ridiculous. Once you understand 
the Civil War 13th and 14th Amendments. The black people are just as much slaves today as before the Civil War, just as the white people are today. And also, we find ourselves subjects to the king and queen of England. The only thing that changed for black people is they changed masters and were granted a few rights, which I might add can be taken away any time the government chooses. Since the 1930s, the black people have been paid reparations to buy off their silence. In other words, keep the slaves on the plantation working. I do not say this to shock or come across as prejudiced, because I'm not. Here's what Russell Means said. For those that don't remember who he is, he was the father in the movie The Last of the Mohicans. Russell Means said, quote, until the white man is free, we will never be free, unquote. The we he was referring to were the Indians. There has never been a truer statement. However, the problem is the white people are not aware of their enslavement. At the risk of being redundant, to set the record straight, because Lord only knows what will be said about what I just said regarding black people. I believe that if you are born in this country, you are equal, period. Forget the empty promises of civil rights. What about your unalienable natural rights under God Almighty? All Americans are feudal tenants on the land, allowed to rent the property they live on as long as the king gets his cut. What about self-determination, or being able to own a lodial title to property, which means the king cannot take your property for failure to pay a tax, which means you did not own it to begin with. The king allows you to use the material goods and land. Again, this is financial servitude. The ultimate ownership of all property is in the state. Individual so-called quote-unquote ownership is only by virtue of government, i.e. law, amounting to a mere user, and use must be in accordance with law and subordinate to the necessities of the state. That came from Senate document number 43, okay, written in 1933. The king controlled the government by the time the North won the Civil War through the use of lawyers that called the shots behind the scenes just as they do now, and well-placed subjects in the United States government. This would not have been possible if not for England destroying our documents in 1812 and the covering up of state documents of the original 13th Amendment. According to international law, what took place when the North conquered the South? First, you have to understand the word conquest in international law. When you conquer a state, you acquire the land, and those that were subject to the conquered state then become subject to the conquerors. The laws of the conquered state 
remain in force until the conquering state wishes to change all or part of them. At the time of conquest, the laws of the conquered state are subject to change or removal, which means the law no longer lies with the American people through the Constitution, but lies with the new sovereign. The Constitution no longer carries any power of its own, but derives its power from the new sovereign, the conqueror. The reason for this is the Constitution derived its power from the people, and when they were defeated, so was the Constitution. Uh, I'm a little... Montgomery's a little confusing there. Uh, derived its power from the people. Uh, anyway. Seems to contradict what he'd written earlier about the Constitution. I think he clears it up later. He probably means privileges for the people. The following is the definition of conquest. Quote, the acquisition of the sovereignty of a country by force of arms, exercised by an independent power which reduces the vanquished to submission to its empire. The intention of the conqueror to retain the conquered territory is generally manifested by formal proclamation of annexation, and when this is combined with a recognized ability to retain the conquered territory, the transfer of sovereignty is complete. A treaty of peace based upon the principle of uti posidetis is formal recognition of conquest. The effects of conquest are to confer upon the conquering state the public property of the conquered state, and to invest the former with the rights and obligations of the latter. Treaties entered into by the conquered state with other states remain binding upon the annexing state, and the debts of the extinct state must be taken over by it. Conquest likewise invests the conquering state with sovereignty over the subjects of the conquered state. Among subjects of the conquered state are to be included persons domiciled in the conquered territory who remain there after the annexation. The people of the conquered state change their allegiance, but not their relations to one another. Unquote. This from Lietensdorfer versus Webb. Uh, doesn't say the year. Quote. After the transfer of political jurisdiction to the conqueror, the municipal laws of the territory continue in force until abrogated by the new sovereign. That from Bouvier's Law Dictionary under Conquest International Law. So what happened after the Civil War? Did not U.S. troops force the southern states to accept the 14th Amendment? The laws of America, the Constitution, were changed by the conquering government. Why? The main part I want you to see, as I said at the beginning of this paper, is watch the money and the commerce. The 14th Amendment says the government debt cannot be questioned. Why? Because now the king wants all the gold, silver, and copper and the land. 
which can easily be done by increasing the government debt and making the American people sureties for the debt. This has been done by the sleight of hand of lawyers and the bankers. The conquering state is known as a belligerent. Read the following quotes. Belligerency is in international law. This is from Bouvier's dictionary. The status, quote, the status of de facto statehood attributed to a body of insurgents by which their hostilities are legalized. Before they can be recognized as belligerents, they must have some sort of political organization and be carrying on what in international law is regarded as legal war. There must be an armed struggle between two political bodies, each of which exercises de facto authority over persons within a determined territory and commands an army which is prepared to observe the ordinary laws of war. It is not enough that the insurgents have an army. They must have an organized civil authority directing the army. The exact point at which revolt or insurrection becomes belligerency is often extremely difficult to determine, and belligerents are not usually recognized by nations unless they have some strong reason or necessity for doing so. Either because the territory where the belligerency is supposed to exist is contiguous to their own, or because the conflict is in some way affecting their commerce or the rights of their citizens. One of the most serious results of recognizing belligerency is that it frees the parent country from all responsibility for what takes place within the insurgent lines. Uh, that, unquote, that from Bouvier's Law Dictionary. Again, from Bouvier's Law Dictionary, belligerent in international law, as adjective and noun, engaged in lawful war, a state so engaged, in plural, a body of insurgents who by reason of their temporary organized government are regarded as conducting lawful hostilities. Also, militia, corps of volunteers, and others who, although not part of the regular army of the state, are regarded as lawful combatants provided they observe the laws of war." Unquote. According to the international law, no law has been broken. Read the following about military occupation. Notice the third paragraph. After the Civil War, title to the land had not been completed to the conquerors, but after 1933 it was. I will address this in a moment. In the last paragraph it says, the commander-in-chief governs the conquered state. The proof that this is the case today is the U.S. flying the United States flag with a yellow fringe on three sides. According to the U.S. Code, Title IV, Section 1, the United States flag does not 
have a fringe on it. The difference being one is a constitutional flag and the fringed flag is a military flag. The military flag means you are in a military occupation and are governed by the commander-in-chief in his executive capacity, not under any constitutional authority. Read the following. Military occupation from Bouvier's Law Dictionary. Quote, This, at most, gives the invader certain partial and limited rights of sovereignty. Military occupation. Until conquest, the sovereign rights of the original owner remain intact. Conquest gives the conqueror full rights of sovereignty and retroactively legalizes all acts done by him during military occupation. Its only essential is actual and exclusive possession, which must be effective. A conqueror may exercise governmental authority, but only when in actual possession of the enemy's country, and this will be exercised upon principles of international law. See McLeod versus U.S. The occupant administers the government and may, strictly speaking, change the municipal law, but it is considered the duty of the occupant to make as few changes in the ordinary administration of the laws as possible, though he may proclaim martial law if necessary. He may occupy public land and buildings. He cannot alienate them so as to pass a good title, but a subsequent conquest would probably complete the title. Private lands and houses are usually exempt. Private movable property is exempt, though subject to contributions and requisitions. The former are payments of money to be levied only by the commander-in-chief. Military necessity may require the destruction of private property and hostile acts of communities or individuals may be punished in the same way. Property may be liable to seizure as booty on the field of battle or when a town refuses to capitulate and is carried by assault. When military occupation ceases, the state of things which existed previously, is restored under the fiction of post-liminium. Territory acquired by war must necessarily be governed in the first instance by military power under the direction of the president as commander-in-chief. Civil government can only be put in operation by the action of the appropriate political department of the government at such time and in such degree as it may determine. It must take effect either by the action of the treaty-making power or by that of Congress, so long as Congress has not incorporated the territory into the United States Neither military occupation nor cession by treaty makes it domestic territory in the sense of the revenue laws. 
Congress may establish a temporary government which is not subject to all the restrictions of the Constitution. See Downs versus Bidwell. Uh, that's uh, unquote. That all about uh, military occupation from Bouvier's Law Dictionary. Paragraph one through three of the definition of military occupation describes what took place during and after the Civil War. What took place during the Civil War and post-Civil War has been legal under international law. You should notice in paragraph three that at the end of the Civil War, title to the land was not complete but the subsequent conquest completed the title. What was the next conquest? That would be 1933, when the American people were alienated by our being declared enemies of the conqueror and by their declaring war against all Americans. Read the following quotes and also see footnote 8. The following are excerpts from the Senate report 93rd Congress, November 19, 1973, Special Committee on the Termination of the National Emergency United States Senate. Since March 9, 1933, the United States has been in a state of declared truth. I'm Gordon Comstock. Time for part three of the United States is still a British colony by James Montgomery. A military flag. And to further confirm and understand the significance of what I have told you in the previous two episodes, you need to understand the fringe on the United States flag. Read the following. First, the appearance of our flag is defined in Title Four, Section 1, U.S.C. Quote, the flag of the United States shall be 13 horizontal stripes, alternate red and white. And the union of the flag shall be 48 stars, white in a blue field. Unquote. Parentheses. My note. Of course, when new states are admitted, new stars are added in parentheses. A footnote was added on page 1113 of the same section, which says, quote, placing of fringe on the national flag, the dimensions of the flag and arrangement of the stars are matters of detail not controlled by statute, but within the discretion of the president as commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy, unquote. The president, as military commander, can add a yellow fringe to our flag. When would this be done? During a time of war. Why? A flag with a fringe is an ensign, a military flag. Read the following, quote, Pursuant to USC chapter 1, 2, and 3, Executive Order, Number 10834, August 21st, 1959, 24FR6865. A military flag is a flag that resembles the regular flag of the United States, 
except that it has a yellow fringe bordered on three sides. The President of the United States designates this deviation from the regular flag by executive order and in his capacity as Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces." Unquote. From the National Encyclopedia, Volume 4, quote, Flag, an emblem of a nation, usually made of cloth and flown from a staff. From a military standpoint, flags are of two general classes. Those flown from stationary masts over army posts and those carried by troops in formation. The former are referred to by the general name flags. The latter are called colors when carried by dismounted troops. Colors and standards are more nearly square than flags and are made of silk with a knotted fringe of yellow on three sides. Dot, dot, dot. Use of the flag. The most general and appropriate use of the flag is as a symbol of authority and power, unquote. The following quote is from Bouvier's Law Dictionary, 1914. Quote, The agency of the master is devolved upon him by the law of the flag. The same law that confers his authority ascertains its limits. And the flag at the masthead is noticed to all the world of the extent of such power to bind the owners or freighters by his act. The foreigner who deals with this agent has notice of that law, and if he be bound by it, there is not injustice. His notice is the national flag which is hoisted on every sea and under which the master sails into every port, and every circumstance that connects him with the vessel isolates that vessel in the eyes of the world and demonstrates his relation to the owners and freighters as their agent for a specific purpose and with power well-defined under the National Maritime Law." Unquote. Don't be thrown by the fact they are talking about the sea and that it doesn't apply to land. Admiralty law came onto land in 1845 with the Act of 1845 by Congress. Next, a quote from the court case Roostrat versus People. Quote, Pursuant to the law of the flag, a military flag does result in jurisdictional implication when flown. The plaintiff cites the following. Under what is called international law, the law of the flag, a ship owner who sends his vessel into a port gives notice by his flag to all who enter into contracts with the shipmaster that he intends the law of the flag to regulate those contracts with the shipmaster that he either submit to its operation or not contract with him or his agent at all, unquote. 
I have had debates with folks that take great issue with what I have said. They dogmatically say the Constitution is the law and the government is outside the law. I wish they were right. But they fail to see or understand that the American people have been conquered, unknowingly, yet conquered all the same. That is why a judge will tell you not to bring the Constitution into his court or a law dictionary because he is the law, not the Constitution. You have only to read the previous Senate's report on national emergency to understand that the Constitution and our constitutional form of government no longer exists. Further evidence. Social security. I fail to understand how the American people could have been so dumbed down as to not see that the social security system is fraudulent and that it is based on socialism, which is the redistribution of wealth right out of the Communist Manifesto. The social security system, first, is fraud. It is insolvent and was never intended to be solvent. It is used for a national identification number and a requirement to receive benefits from the conqueror, i.e. king. The social security system is made to look and act like insurance. All insurance is governed by admiralty law, which is the king's way of binding those involved with commerce with him. The following quote is from Helvering versus Davis. Quote, The social security system may be accurately described as a form of social insurance enacted pursuant to Congress's power to spend money in aid of the general welfare, unquote. Following quote is from Federal Judge Story in Delovio versus Boyd from 1815, quote, My judgment accordingly is that policies of insurance are within the admiralty and maritime jurisdiction of the United States, unquote. You need to know and understand what contribution means in FICA, the Federal Insurance Contribution Act. Read the following definition. Contribution, from Black Law Dictionary, 6th edition. The right of one who has discharged a common liability to recover of another also liable, the aliquot portion which he ought to pay or bear. Under principle of contribution, a tortfeasor against whom a judgment is rendered is entitled to recover proportional shares of judgment from other joint tortfeasor whose negligence contributed to the injury and who were also liable to the plaintiff. The share of a loss payable by an insurer when contracts with two or more insurers cover the same loss. The insurer's share of a loss 
under a coinsurance or similar provision, the sharing of a loss or payment among several, the act of any one or several of a number of co-debtors, co-sureties, etc., in reimbursing one of their number who has paid the whole debt or suffered the whole liability, each to the extent of his proportionate share, unquote. Thereby making you obligated for the national debt. The social security system is one of the contractual nexuses between you and the king. Because you are involved in the king's commerce and have asked voluntarily for his protection, you have accomplished the following. You have admitted that you are equally responsible for having caused the national debt and that you are a wrongdoer as defined by the above definition. You have admitted to being a 14th Amendment citizen who only has civil rights granted by the king. By being a 14th Amendment citizen, you have agreed that you do not have standing in court to question the national debt. Keep in mind, this is beyond the status of our country and people, which I covered earlier in this paper. We are in this system of law because of the conquest of our country. Congress has transferred its constitutional obligation of coining money to the Federal Reserve, the representatives of the king. This began after the Civil War and the overturning of the U.S. Constitution as a result of conquest. You have used this fiat money without objection, which is a commercial benefit supplied by the king's bankers. Fiat money has no real value other than the faith in it, and you cannot pay a debt with fiat money because it is a debt instrument. A Federal Reserve note is a promise to pay and is only evidence of debt. The benefit you have received is you are allowed to discharge your debt, which means you pass on financial servitude to someone else. The someone else is our children. When you go to the grocery store and hand the clerk a $50 Federal Reserve note, you have stolen the groceries and passed $50 of debt to the seller. Americans try to acquire as much of this fiat money as they can. If Americans were aware of this, it wouldn't matter to them because they don't care if the merchandise is stolen as long as it is legal. But what happens if the system fails? Those with the most fiat money or real property, which was obtained with fiat money, will be forfeited to the king. Everything that was obtained with this fiat money reverts back to the king. I will explain in the conclusion of this paper. Because use of his fiat money is a benefit supplied by the king's bankers, it all therefore transfers back to the king.
The king's claim to the increase in the country comes from the original charter of 1606. But it is all hidden. Black is white and white is black. Wealth is actually debt and financial slavery. For those that do not have a social security number or think they have rescinded it, you are no better off. Well, there goes George Gordon's uh, argument, I think. As far as the king is concerned, you are subject to him also. Why? Well, just to list a couple of reasons other than conquest, you use his money, and that, well, Gordon doesn't do that. And as I said before, this is discharging debt without prosecution. You use the goods and services that were obtained by this fiat money. Well, maybe Gordon's all right. He doesn't do that either. To enrich your lifestyle and sustain yourself. You drive or travel, whichever definition you want to use, on the king's highways and roads for pleasure and to earn a living meaning you are involved in the king's commerce. On top of these reasons, which are based on received benefits, this country has been conquered. I know a lot of patriots won't like this. Your argument has been that the government has and is operating outside of the law, i.e. the United States Constitution. Believe me, I don't like sounding like the devil's advocate, but as far as international law goes, and the laws that govern war between countries, the king or queen of England ruled this country, first by financial servitude, and then by actual conquest and military occupation. The Civil War was the beginning of the conquest, as evidenced by the 14th Amendment. This amendment did several things, as already mentioned. It created the only citizenship available to the conquered and declared that these citizens had no standing in any court to challenge the monetary policies of the new government. Why? So the king would always receive his gain from his commercial venture, the amendment also eliminated your use of the natural rights and gave the conquered civil rights. The conquered are governed by public policy instead of republic of self-government under God Almighty. Your argument that this can't be is frivolous and without merit. The evidence is conclusive. Nothing has changed since before the Revolutionary War. All persons whose activities in King's commerce are such that they fall under this marine-like environment are into an invisible admiralty jurisdiction contract. Admiralty jurisdiction is the King's commerce of the high seas. And if the king is a party to the sea-based commerce, such as by the king having financed your ship or the ship is carrying the king's guns, 
The net commerce is properly governed by the special rules applicable to admiralty jurisdiction. But as for that slice of commerce going on out on the high seas without the king as a party, that commerce is called maritime jurisdiction, and so maritime is the private commerce that transpires in a marine environment. At least that distinction between admiralty and maritime is the way things once were, but no more. What Lincoln and Jefferson said about the true American danger was very prophetic. This quote is from Abraham Lincoln, quote, All the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined could not, by force, take a drink from the Ohio or make a track on the Blue Ridge in a trial of a thousand years. At what point, then, is the approach of danger to be expected? I answer, if it ever reach us, it must spring up amongst us. It cannot come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, we ourselves must be its author and finisher, unquote. The following quote is from Thomas Jefferson, quote, Our rulers will become corrupt, our people careless. The time for fixing every essential right on a legal basis is now, while our rulers are honest and ourselves united. From the conclusion of this war, we shall be going downhill. It will not then be necessary to resort every moment to the people for support. They will be forgotten, therefore, and their rights disregarded. They will forget themselves, but in the sole faculty of making money and will never think of uniting to effect a due respect for their rights. The shackles, therefore, which shall not be knocked off at the conclusion of this war, will remain on us long, will be made heavier and heavier, till our rights shall revive or expire in a convulsion. Unquote. Below are the political platforms of the Democrats and the Republicans, as you can see, there is no difference between the two. Plain socialism either way. They are both leading America to a world government, just as Cornwallis said, and that government will be the British Empire or promoted by the British. The following is from the Democratic Party platform of 1936. Quote, we have built foundations for the security of those who are faced with the hazards of unemployment and old age, for the orphaned, the crippled, and the blind. On the foundation of the Social Security Act, we are determined to erect a structure of economic security for all our people, making sure that this benefit shall keep step with the ever-increasing capacity of America to provide a high standard of living for all its citizens, unquote. The following is from the Republican Party platform of 1936. It's a bit longer here. Quote, Real security will be possible only when our productive capacity is sufficient to furnish a decent standard of living for all American families 
and to provide a surplus for future needs and contingencies. For the attainment of that ultimate objective, we look to the energy, self-reliance, and character of our people and to our system of free enterprise. Society has an obligation to promote the security of the people by affording some measure of protection against involuntary unemployment and dependency in old age. The New Deal policies, while purporting to provide social security, have in fact endangered it. We propose a system of old age security based upon the following principles. One, we approve a pay-as-you-go policy which requires of each generation the support of the aged and the determination of what is just and adequate. Two, every American citizen over 65 should receive a supplemental payment necessary to provide a minimum income sufficient to protect him or her of want. Three, each state and territory, upon complying with simple and general minimum standards, should receive from the federal government a graduated contribution in proportion to its own up to a fixed maximum. Four, to make this program consistent with sound fiscal policy, the federal revenues for this purpose must be provided from the proceeds of a direct tax widely distributed all will be benefited and all should contribute. We propose to encourage adoption by the states and territories of honest and practical measures for meeting the problems of employment insurance. The unemployment insurance and old age annuity of the present Social Security Act are unworkable and deny benefits to about two-thirds of our adult population including professional men and women, and all engaged in agriculture and domestic service, and the self-employed, while imposing heavy tax burdens upon all." Unquote. Both platforms appear in National Party Platforms, 1840 to 1972, compiled by Ronald Miller in 1973. Conclusion. Jesus gave us the most profound warning and advice of all time. Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed by a lack of knowledge. This being our understanding and spiritual development in his word. When applied to many facets of life, his word exposes all of life's pitfalls. Jesus Christ's word covers all aspects of life. The working class during the 1700s were far more educated than now, but this was still not enough to protect them from the secret subterfuge practiced by the lawyers and bankers. Only with understanding of Jesus Christ's word can the evil application of man's law be exposed and understood for what it is. This is why Jesus also warned of the beguilement of the lawyers and the deceit and deception they practice. Another reason 
The working class has been unable to understand their enslavement is because of the time spent working for a living. At wages supplied by the upper class, sufficient to live and even prosper, but never enough to attain upper class status. This is basic class warfare. This system is protected by the upper class controlling public education to limit and focus the working class's knowledge to maintain class separation. What does this have to do with this paper? Everything. This is the reason our upper class forefathers submitted to the king in the Treaty of 1783. After this treaty, and up to the Civil War, the working class were busy making this the greatest country in the history of the world. You see, they believed they were free. And a free man will work much harder than a man that is subject or a slave. As a whole, the working class were not paying attention to what the government was doing, including its treaties and laws. This allowed time for the banking procedures and laws to be put in place over time while the nation slept so the nation could be conquered during the Civil War. The only way to regain this country is with the re-education of the working class so they can make informed decisions and vote. Well, good luck on that. Vote the mismanagers of our government out of office. Uh, as Joseph Stalin said, it's not who votes, it's who counts the votes. We could then reverse the post-Civil War socialist laws and the one-world government laws that have been gradually put in place since the Civil War. Until the defeat of America is recognized, victory will never be obtainable. Only through reliance by faith on Jesus Christ and the teaching of his kingdom will we realize our freedom. As I said earlier, just as this country has been conquered, when Jesus Christ returns, he conquers all nations and takes possession of his kingdom and rules them with a rod of iron. Revelation 11:15-18. His right of ownership is enforced by the law, God Almighty. The following quote is from Thomas Jefferson. Quote, and to preserve their independence, we must not let our rulers load us with perpetual debt. We must make our election between economy and liberty, or profusion and servitude. If we run into such debts as that, we must be taxed in our meat and in our drink, in our necessaries and our comforts, in our labors and our amusements, for our callings and our creeds, as the people of England are, our people, like them, must come to labor sixteen hours in the twenty-four. Oh, yeah, that's what we have now. And give the earnings of 15 of these to the government for their debts and daily expenses. And the 16th being insufficient to afford us bread, we must live, as they do now, on oatmeal and potatoes, or TV dinners, 
or the wife's at work as well as the husband. And nobody's watching the child. Have not time to think, no means of calling the mismanagers to account, but be glad to obtain subsistence by hiring ourselves to rivet their chains on the necks of our fellow sufferers. Unquote. Boy, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, boy, he could, he was so quotable and so brilliant, but at the same time, I I don't I don't think he understood that uh, the people around him, the elitists around him, uh, sold us out, as James Montgomery documents. All right. Um, I'll just uh, briefly go through some highlights of the uh, voluminous footnotes uh, that, uh, especially just for an essay, that that James Montgomery includes here. It starts out with the original charter for Virginia. Uh, The next footnote, too, though, look at this. The Paris Peace Treaty, which uh, supposedly ended the Revolutionary War with... uh, the United States is supposedly the winner. Well, look how it starts here. This is from the, the, the Paris Peace Treaty, ending the Revolutionary War. It, having pleased the divine providence to dispose the hearts of the most serene and most potent Prince George III, and it lists all of his titles. One of them is uh, the Prince Elector, of the Holy Roman Empire and the United States of America to forget all past misunderstandings and differences that have unhappily interrupted the good correspondence and friendship which they mutually wish to restore. And it lists the fellow, it goes on from there, it lists the fellow co-signers, David Hartley, Esquire, John Adams, Esquire, Benjamin Franklin, Esquire, John J. Esquire, those are all titles of nobility showing that all four of those men were subject still to the king of Britain. Uh, but uh, you will find that it's the king dictating the treaty here, dictating the terms of this treaty. The king, the supposed loser of this war, dictating the treaty. Uh, you see anything wrong with this picture? Uh, okay, check out Article 4 here. Look how they snuck this in. Article 4 of the Peace Treaty. It is agreed that creditors on either side shall meet with no lawful impediment to the recovery of the full value in sterling money of all bona fide debts heretofore contracted. There you go. Just like David Astle pointed out, in the Babylonian woe, the front man for the bankers, in this case King George III, they will always cover for the bankers, always make sure the bankers, their bosses, get paid. (laughs) But wait a minute. Didn't we win the war? (laughs) And we got to pay the king's bankers still? Okay. Uh, But but basically, if you go through all the articles in the treaty, you'll see that it, it is even as it started out, is the, the, the king of, of England who is setting all of the terms, Article 1, 2, you name it. Uh, he was dic- calling the, the shots. And since when 
does the loser in a war do that? We, he, the king of England was not the loser in that war. Uh, moving on in history and in the footnotes, this is Jay's treaty from a few years later. Oh, gosh, what year was this? Uh, <laughs> doesn't say. It'll say at the end, I suppose. But in Jay's treaty, uh, look at this. Article 2 in Jay's treaty. His majesty will withdraw all his troops and garrisons from all posts and places within the boundary lines assigned by the Treaty of Peace to the United States. Uh, what were British troops still doing there? Okay, and this 13 years after the Treaty of Peace was supposed to have removed them. <laughs> Folks, we didn't win that war. We did not win that war. Uh, moving on. And the king's giving us uh, all of our land that we're already supposed to have in, in this Jay's Treaty. Article 6. Whereas it is alleged by diverse British merchants and others, His Majesty's subjects, that debts to a considerable amount which were bona fide contracted before the peace still remain owing to them by citizens or inhabitants of the United States. Uh, okay, the King of England is still dictating terms to the United States about debt collections for Britain here. You know, he's, he's covering for the bankers again, making sure uh, the, the King is making sure his banking bosses get paid so that by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings, the British creditors cannot now obtain compensation for the losses and damages which they have thereby sustained. It is agreed the United States will make full and complete compensation for the same to the said creditors. What is the King of Britain doing dictating that if we really won that war, folks? Okay, Article 12 of Jay's Treaty. His Majesty consents, <laughs> dictating again, that it shall and may be lawful, oh, thank you, during the time hereinafter limited, for the citizens of the United States to carry to any of His Majesty's islands and ports in the West Indies from the United States in their own vessels, not being above the burthen of 70 tons, any goods or merchandises, being of the growth, manufacture, uh, or produce of the said states. And His Majesty also consents. Look at this. Look at the, the supposed loser of the war is consenting. Mm. The king is dict This is dictating terms. If the king had w lost that war, there would this wouldn't happen. This is not the way it happened, as uh, James Montgomery pointed out. When, uh, on the USS Missouri, when General MacArthur uh, arranged the peace, signed the peace treaty with the Japanese, it was MacArthur who dictated the, the terms because the United States won that war. Did we let Japan dictate the terms? Uh, no, because they lost the war. Well, here, the King of England's dictating the terms because because America, the United States, did not win that Revolutionary War. And His Majesty also consents, provided all, uh, giving us, oh, giving us our ports and islands. Oh, thanks. 
provided always that the said Americans do carry and land their cargoes in the United States only, the United States will prohibit and restrain the carrying of any molasses, sugar, coffee, or cotton in American vessels. Uh, okay, just telling us where we can take our stuff to, where we can, where we can ship our goods to, and where we can't. The king of Britain in Jay's Treaty is dictating that. Why is the king dictating terms of American trading 13 years after the Treaty of Peace if America really won that revolution? America didn't really win that American revolution. Uh, Article 18. In order to regulate what is in future to be esteemed contraband of war, all the above are, and it lists a ton of stuff here, uh, and it's all munitions. Anything having to do with uh, munitions, petards, mortars, muskets, cannon, bandoliers, gunpowder, etc., etc. All of the above articles are hereby declared to be just objects of confiscation. Why is America agreeing to a wide variety of material to be confiscated by the British if America really won that revolution. We didn't win that revolution. Uh, anything else I wanted to show? Um, I, maybe that's it. Uh, something else I got highlighted here and then we'll call it a day. Congressman Beck had this to say about the 1933 War Powers Act. You'll find this under Congressman James Peck in the Congressional Record of 1933. Quote, I think of all the damnable heresies that have ever been suggested in connection with the Constitution, the doctrine of emergency is the worst. It means that when Congress declares an emergency, there is no Constitution. This means it's death. But the Constitution of the United States has a restraining influence in keeping the federal government within the carefully prescribed channels of power is moribund, if not dead. We are witnessing its death agonies, for when this bill becomes a law, if unhappily it becomes law, which it did, there is no longer any workable constitution to keep the Congress within the limits of its constitutional powers, unquote. There you go, folks. A congressman in 1933 declared that if the War Powers Act went through, which it did, said, uh, <laughs> the country's dead. It's gone. And we were declared in that act alien enemies. And alien enemies... <laughs> alien enemies... It's late. Alien enemies, defined in Bouvier's Law Dictionary, they're said to have no rights, no privileges, unless by the king's special favor during time of war. And uh, it's one who owes allegiance to the adverse belligerent. <laughs> That's us. Congratulations. We're slaves. And we're making bricks for Pharaoh. The difference between 
a guy like myself and uh, people listening to the show and the rest of the country is we know they don't. They don't know they're slaves, folks. How's that? How, how's that? Oh, come, Jesus, come. Uh, this has been part three and the close of The United States is Still a British Colony by James Montgomery. I'll tell you what, uh, I'm going to get into one, just one more essay by James Montgomery. I think it's going to be that uh, the one called A Country Defeated in Victory. Uh, because he goes into greater detail on uh, exactly how they pulled off the shenanigans that uh, the, how the founding quote-unquote fathers pulled off the shenanigans of making us believe the, constitu- the Constitution was one thing when it uh, really was not. It was a... T- <laughs> um, it's, yeah, so there'll be a couple more shows about James Montgomery, and, and that'll be that. But uh, that was his, this has been his essay, The United States is Still a British Colony. So stop hearkening. Stop referring back to the Constitution. It did meaningless. Gone. It never meant anything. Uh, it gave us some privileges. Okay, uh, this has been the Ministry of Truth. I'm Gordon Comstock. Thank you for listening. Over and out. Come, Jesus. Come. This is the Ministry of Truth. I'm Gordon Comstock. Dear listener, dear American, if you're one of those Americans who still has faith in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, you, you know the government's going to hell in a handbasket and the country's going to hell in a handbasket around you, but boy, if we could just get back to that Constitution. If you're one of those, if you're a constitutionalist, as I used to be before I educated myself, then the work of James Montgomery, the research of this man, James Montgomery, has got something for you. So just stand back, stand there, and here it comes. Like it or not. Bend over, America, by James Montgomery. This is from Mark Twain. You see, my kind of loyalty was loyalty to one's country not to institutions or its office holders. The country's the real thing. It is the thing to watch over and care for and be loyal to. Institutions are extraneous. They are its mere clothing, and clothing can wear out and become ragged and cease to be comfortable, cease to protect the body from winter, disease, and death. To be loyal to rags, to shout for rags, to worship rags, to die for rags, That is a loyalty of unreason. It is pure animal. It belongs to monarchy. It was invented by monarchy. Well, let monarchy keep it. I was from Connecticut, whose constitution declared that all political power is inherent in the people, and all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their benefit, and that They have at all times an undeniable and indefensible right to alter their form of government in such a manner as they think expedient. Under that gospel, the citizen who thinks that the commonwealth's political clothes are worn out and yet holds his peace and does not agitate for a new suit is disloyal. 
he is a traitor. That he may be the only one who thinks he sees this decay does not excuse him. It is his duty to agitate anyway, and it's the duty of others to vote him down if they do not see the matter as he does. Unquote. This is from the Congressional Record, April 9th, 1934, from Mark Twain. Mark Twain has stated very well what needs to be the motivation of all patriots. But any new government with leaders that do not follow God's almighty word and law and let that reign supreme will return to the ashes in which their endeavor was begun. It's not an easy thing having to tell someone that they've been conned into believing they are free. For some to accept this is comparable to denying God Almighty. You have to be made to understand that the United States is a corporation, which is a continuation of the corporate charters created by the King of England, and that the states, upon ratifying their individual state constitutions, became sub-corporations under and subordinate to the Corporation of the United States. The counties and municipalities became sub-corporations under the state charters. It is my duty to report further evidence concerning the claims I made in the United States is still a British colony. I have always used a copy of the North Carolina Constitution provided by the state. I should have known better to take this as the final authority. To my knowledge, the following quote has not been in the Constitution that the state hands out or those in use in the schools. The 1776 North Carolina Constitution created a new corporate charter and declared our individual freedoms. However, the same corporate charter reserved the king's title to the land, which restored and did not diminish his grants, that were made in his early charters. If you remember, I made the claim that legally we are still subject to the king. In the below quote, you will see that the king declares that our taxation will be forever and that a fourth of all gold and silver will be returned to him. This is from the Carolina Charter from 1663. Quote, Paying yearly to us, our heirs and successors, that means all the kings and queens to come, for the same, the yearly rent of twenty marks of lawful money of England, at the feast of all saints, yearly, forever, the first payment thereof to begin and be made on the feast of all saints, which shall be in the year of our Lord, one thousand six hundred sixty and five and also the fourth part of all gold and silver ore, which, with the limits aforesaid, shall from time to time happen to be found, unquote. Side note, boy, does that ever wonderfully dovetail with uh, what David Astle wrote about in The Babylonian Woe, where the front men for the bankers, the kings, queens, tyrants, dictators, whoever, presidents, they will always 
make sure that the gold and silver gets to the bankers. They will always make sure the bankers, their bosses, get paid in ore, in gold and silver ore. And thus we find it here. From the King of England in 1663. Back to Bend Over America by James Montgomery. I know patriots will have a hard time with this because, as I said earlier, they would have to deny what they have been taught from an early age. You have to continue to go back in historical documents and see if what you have been taught is correct. The following quote is from Section 25 of the 1776 North Carolina Constitution Declaration of Rights, quote, and provided further that nothing herein contained shall affect the titles or possessions of individuals holding or claiming under the laws heretofore in force or grants heretofore made by the late King George II or his predecessors or the late Lord's proprietors or any of them, unquote. The Declaration of Rights, 1776, from North Carolina's Constitution. Can it be any plainer? Nobody reads. They take what is told to them by their schools and government as gospel and never look any further. They are quick to attack anyone that does look further because it threatens their way of life. It rocks the boat, in other words. Read the following quote from a court case. Quote, definition given by Blackstone, volume 2, page 244. I shall therefore only cite that respectable authority in his own words. Quote, as cheat, we may remember, was one of the fruits and consequences of feudal tenure. The word itself is originally French or Norman, in which language it signifies chance or accident, and with us denotes an obstruction of the course of descent and a consequent determination of the tenure by some unforeseen contingency, in which case the estate naturally results back by a kind of reversion to the original grantor or lords of the fee, unquote. Every person knows in what manner the citizens acquired the property of the soil within the limits of this state. Being dissatisfied with the measures of the British government, they revolted from it, assumed the government into their own hands, seized and took possession of all the estates of the King of Great Britain and his subjects, appropriated them to their own use, and defended their possessions against the claims of Great Britain during a long and bloody war, and finally obtained a relinquishment of those claims by the Treaty of Paris. But this state had no title to the territory prior to the title of the King of Great Britain and his subjects, nor did it ever claim as Lord Paramount to them. This state was not the original grantor to them, nor did they ever hold any kind of tenure under the state or owe it 
any allegiance or other duties to which an escheat is annexed. How then can it be said that the lands in this case naturally result back by a kind of reversion to this state, to a source from whence it never issued, and from tenants who never held under it? Might it not be stated with equal propriety that this country has cheated to the king of Great Britain from the Aborigines when he drove them off and took and maintained possession of their country? At the time of the revolution and before the Declaration of Independence, the collective body of the people had neither right to nor possession of the territory of this state. It is true some individuals had a right to and were in possession of certain portions of it, which they held under grants from the King of Great Britain, but they did not hold, nor did any of his subjects hold, under the collective body of the people, who had no power to grant any part of it. After the Declaration of Independence and the establishment of the Constitution, the people may be said first to have taken possession of this country, at least so much of it as was not previously appropriated to individuals. Then their sovereignty commenced, and with it a right to all the property not previously vested in individual citizens, with all the other rights of sovereignty, and among those, the right of escheats. This sovereignty did not accrue to them by escheats, but by conquest from the king of Great Britain and his subjects. But they had acquired nothing by that means from the citizens of the state. Each individual had, under this view of the case, a right to retain his private property independent of the reservation in the Declaration of Rights. But if there could be any doubt on that head, it is clearly explained and obviated by the proviso in that instrument. Therefore, whether the state took by right of conquest or as cheat, all the interest which the UK had previous to the Declaration of Independence still remained with them on every principle of law and equity, because they are purchasers for a valuable consideration and being in possession as Sestui K. Trust under the statute for transferring uses into possession. And citizens of this state at the time of the Declaration of Independence and at the time of making the Declaration of Rights, their interest is secured to them beyond the reach of any act of assembly, neither can it be affected by any principle arising from the doctrine of escheats, supposing what I do not admit that the state took by escheat. Unquote, that from 1801, the court case Marshall versus Loveless. There was no way we could have had a perfected title to this land. Once we had won the Revolutionary War, we would have had to have had an unconditional surrender by the king, and this did not take place. Not what took place at Yorktown when we let the king off the hook 
barring this, the king would have to have sold us this land for us to have a perfected title, just as the Indians sold their land to the king, or the eight Carolina proprietors sold Carolina back to the king. The Treaty of 1783 did not remove the king's claim and original title because he kept the minerals. This was no different than when King Charles II gave Carolina by charter to the lords that helped put him back in power. Compare them, and you will see the end result is the same. The charter to the lords is footnote 6, where eight proprietors were given title to the land, but the king retained the money and sovereignty for his heirs. The king could not just give up America to the colonialist, nor would he. He would violate his own law of mortmain to put these lands in dead hands, no longer to be able to be used by himself or his heirs and successors. He would also be guilty of harming his heirs and successors by giving away that which he declared in the following quotes, and there are similar quotes in the other charters. Quote, Saving always the faith, allegiance, and sovereign dominion due to us, our heirs and successors for the same. And saving also the right title and interest of all, and every our subjects of the English nation, which are now planted within the limits bounds aforesaid, if any be. Dot, 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 unquote, from the Carolina Charter, 1663, footnote number five. Quote, Know ye that we, of our further grace, certain knowledge, and mere motion, have thought fit to erect the same tract of ground, country, and island into a province, and out of the fullness of our royal power and prerogative, we do, for us, our heirs and successors erect, incorporate, and ordain the same into a province, and do call it the province of Carolina, and so from henceforth we'll have it called. Dot, 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 unquote, the Carolina Charter, 1663, footnote number five again. The U.S. Constitution is a treaty between the states creating a corporation for the king. In the below quote, pay attention to the large S state and the small S state. The large S state is referring to the corporate state, capital S, and its sovereignty over the small s state because of the treaty. Read the following quote. Quote, head note five. Besides, the treaty of 1783 was declared by an act of assembly of this state, capital S, passed in 1787 to be law in this state, capital S, and this state, capital S, by adopting the Constitution of the United States in 1789, 
declared the treaty to be the supreme law of the land. The treaty now under consideration was made on the part of the United States, capital S, by a Congress composed of deputies from each state, lowercase s, to whom were delegated by the Articles of Confederation expressly the sole and exclusive right and power of entering into treaties and alliances. And being ratified and made by them, it became a complete national act, and the act and law of every state, lowercase s. If, however, a subsequent sanction of this state, capital S, was at all necessary to make the treaty law here, it has been had and repeated. By a statute passed in 1787, the treaty was declared to be law in this state, capital S, and the courts of law and equity were enjoined to govern their decisions accordingly. And in 1789 was adopted here the present Constitution of the United States, capital S, which declared that all treaties made or which should be made under the authority of the United States, capital S, should be the supreme law of the land and that the judges in every state, lowercase s, should be bound thereby. Anything in the Constitution or laws of any state, lowercase s, to the contrary notwithstanding. There it is, folks, there it is. Surely then, the treaty is now law in this state, capital S, and the Confiscation Act, so far as the treaty interferes with it, is annulled, unquote. There you have it, folks, the state the corporate entity known as the state, with a capital S, reigns supreme over the geographic region state, lowercase s. We've been sold out. We've been sold a bill of goods. By who? By lawyers, still subject to the king, with their title of nobility called Esquire. And what did Jesus Christ say about lawyers? He wished woe upon them and the money changers, who rule over the king and the lawyers. What did these... I mean, think about this. When we're children, okay, you play these little petty games when you're children, like, not it, and you touch them, not it, not it, and, and little word games, like, like uh, remember that stupid Pee Wee Herman movie? I know you are, but what am I? I know you are, but what am I? And then, then I double-dog dare you. I triple-dog dare you. All of these stupid little word games childish little word games. Tag, you're it. That's what children do, right? That's what lawyers do. And that's how they rule surreptitiously over you. Fools, they've got you. They had to resort to childish little word games, little capitalization games, but they did. And that's how they've got you as their slave. Look at your driver's license. Your name is all in caps because that's the fiction you, the straw man you, if you will, although some people have abused that and claimed that they, <laughs> they get to have all this free money now. Forget that. But that, that your name in all caps, that's the fiction you, and that's how they enslave you. And here, the capital S state, that's the corporation. The lowercase s state, 
that's the geographic state you live in and 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 in which you were enslaved in to the corporate capitalist state. Congratulations, you just got it. Finally. Now you know why James Montgomery entitled this chapter Bend Over America. Quote, by an act of the legislature of North Carolina passed in April 1777, it was, among other things, enacted that all persons being subjects of this state, capital S, and now living therein, or who shall hereafter come to live therein, who have traded immediately to Great Britain or Ireland within ten years last past in their own right, or acted as factors, storekeepers, or agents here, or in any of the United States of America, all caps, for merchants residing in Great Britain or Ireland shall take an oath of abjuration and allegiance or depart out of the state, capital S. That from Treaties of the Law of the Land, the court case Hamilton versus Eaton from 1796. Your presence in the state, capital S, makes you subject to its laws. Read the following quote. The states are to be considered with respect to each other as independent sovereignties, possessing powers completely adequate to their own government, in the exercise of which they are limited only by the nature and objects of government, by their respective constitutions, and by that of the United States, capital U, capital S, the corporation, in other words, crimes and misdemeanors committed within the limits of each are punishable only by the jurisdiction of that state where they arise, for the right of punishing being founded upon the consent of the citizens, express or implied, cannot be directed against those who never were citizens, and who likewise committed the offense beyond the territorial limits of the state claiming jurisdiction, and the state, state uh, lowercase state. Our legislature may define and punish crimes committed within the state, uppercase S there, the corporate state, whether by citizen or strangers, because the former are supposed to have consented to all laws made by the legislature, and the latter, whether their residence be temporary or permanent, do impliedly agree to yield obedience to all such laws as long as they remain in the state, capital S, the corporate state there. Unquote. That was from the court case State versus Knight from 1799. Do you understand now the treaty, the corporate charter, the North Carolina Constitution, in this case, by proxy of the electorates, created residence in the large S state, the corporate state, not by some further acumen. So how can expatriation from the United States, capital U, capital S, Remove your residence in the state, capital S, which was created by treaty, ratified by our, quote-unquote, forefathers. 
As soon as the corporate charter or treaty was ratified, we returned to subjection to the King of England through the legal residence created by the treaty. Remember in the quote I gave earlier, by treaty we recanted our declared freedom and returned to the king his sovereignty and title. In the following quote, you will see that the state Supreme Court, capital S state, sits by being placed by the General Assembly. This is the North Carolina Supreme Court history, Supreme Court of North Carolina, a brief history. Quote, the legal and historical origins of the Supreme Court of North Carolina lie in the state, capital S, Constitution of 1776, which empowered the General Assembly to appoint judges of the Supreme Courts of Law and Equity and judges of Admiralty. The first meeting of the court took place on January 1st, 1819. The court began holding two sittings, or terms, a year. The first beginning on the second Monday in June, and the second on the last Monday in December. This schedule endured until the Constitution of 1868 prescribed the first Mondays in January and July for the sittings. Vacancies on the court were filled temporarily by the governor with the assistance and advice of the Council of State, capital S, until the end of the next session of the state, lowercase s, General Assembly, unquote. From the internet, address can be made available. Council of State, capital S, what is the Council of State, and where did it originate? Three, quote, The one of which councils to be called the Council of State, lowercase s, and whose office shall chiefly be assisting with their care, advice, and circumspection to the said governor, shall be chosen, nominated, and placed and displaced from time to time by us, the said treasurer, council, and company, and our successors, which council of state, lowercase s, shall consist for the present only of these persons as are here inserted. Four, the other council, more generally to be called by the governor, once yearly, and no oftener, but for very extraordinary and important occasions, shall consist for the present of the said Council of State, lowercase s, and of two burgesses out of every town, hundred, or other particular plantation, to be respectively chosen by the inhabitants, which council shall be called the General Assembly, wherein all matters shall be decided, determined, and ordered by the greater part of the voices then present, as also in the said Council of State, lowercase s, reserving to the governor always a negative voice. And this General Assembly shall have free power to treat, consult, and conclude, as well, of all emergent occasions concerning the public weal of the said colony and every part thereof, 
as also to make, ordain, and enact such general laws and orders for the behoof of the said colony, and the good government thereof, as shall from time to time appear necessary or requisite, unquote, that from an ordinance and constitution of the Virginia Company in England, see footnote 4. The job of the first council of state, capital S, was to make sure the governor followed the king's wishes. The second was the general assembly. The laws they passed had to conform to the king's law. Read the following quote. Also see footnote four. Uh, five, quote, whereas in all other things we require the said general assembly has also the said council of state, lowercase s, to imitate and follow the policy of the form of government, laws, customs, and manner of trial, and other administration of justice used in the realm of England, as near as may be even as ourselves, by his majesty's letters patent are required. Six, provided that no law or ordinance made in the said General Assembly shall be or continue in force or validity, unless the same shall be solemnly ratified and confirmed in a general quarter of the said company here in England, and so ratified, be returned to them under our seal." it being our intent to afford the like measure also unto the said colony that after the government of the said colony shall once have been well framed and settled accordingly, which is to be done by us as by authority derived from his majesty, and the same shall have been so declared by us, no orders of court afterwards shall bind the said colony unless they be ratified in like manner in the general assemblies. In witness whereof we have hereunto set our common seal, the 24th of July, 1621, unquote, an ordinance and constitution of the Virginia Company in England. And that again is footnote four on here, which we won't read, but... Uh, now we get back to James Montgomery's writing. It's interspersed with these quotes here. Montgomery writes, The Council of State still exists today, although it has been modified several times. The first major change came in 1776. North Carolina Constitution, read the below quotes. 16, quote, That the Senate and House of Commons jointly at their first meeting after each annual election shall by ballot elect seven persons to be a council of state, uh, lowercase s, for one year, who shall advise the governor in the execution of his office and that four members shall be a quorum. Their advice and proceedings shall be entered in a journal to be kept for that purpose only and signed by the members present to any part of which any member present may enter his dissent, and such journal shall be laid before the General Assembly when called for by them." Unquote. See footnote number nine. Nineteen, quote, The governor, for the time being, shall have power to draw for 
and apply such sums of money as shall be voted by the General Assembly for the contingencies of government and be accountable to them for the same. He also may, by and with the advice of the Council of State, lowercase s, lay embargoes or prohibit the exportation of any commodity for any term not exceeding 30 days at any one time in the recess of the General Assembly and shall have the power of granting pardons and reprieves except where the prosecution shall be carried on by the General Assembly or the law shall otherwise direct, in which case he may, in the recess, grant a reprieve until the next sitting of the General Assembly, and he may exercise all the other executive powers of government, limited and restrained, as by this Constitution is mentioned, and according to the laws of the state, capital S, and on his death, inability, or absence from the state, capital S, the Speaker of the Senate for the time being, and in case of his death, inability, or absence from the state, capital S, the Speaker of the House of Commons shall exercise the powers of government after such death, or during such absence, or inability of the Governor, or Speaker of the Senate, or until a new nomination is made by the General Assembly, unquote, footnote 9. Don't you just love this legalese, this Byzantine, bizarro world legalese language that is designed to make it uh, really impossible for the average man to read it. This is a priesthood, these dastardly lawyers. They're a and uh, an arcane priesthood. This is their mystery religion. This is how they reign supreme over you. Language obfuscation. Getting back, 20, quote, that in every case where any officer, the right of whose appointment is by this constitution, vested in the General Assembly, shall during their recess die, or his office by other means become vacant, the governor shall have power, with the advice of the Council of State, capital S, to fill up such vacancy by granting a temporary commission, which shall expire at the end of the next session of the General Assembly, unquote. See footnote 9. Also, take notice, who was not allowed to serve as Council of State, capital S, 26, quote, that no treasurer shall have a seat, either in the Senate, House of Commons, or Council of State, during his continuance in that office, or before he shall have finally settled his accounts with the public for all the monies which may be in his hands at the expiration of his office, belonging to the State, capital S, and hath paid the same into the hands of the succeeding treasurer, unquote. 27, quote, that no officer in the regular army or navy in the service and pay of the United States, capital U, capital S, of this state, capital S, or any other state, capital S, nor any contractor or agent for supplying such army or navy with clothing or provisions shall have a seat either in the Senate, House of Commons, or Council of State, lowercase s, or be eligible thereto, and any member of the Senate, House of Commons, or Council of State, lowercase s, being appointed to, 
and accepting of such office shall thereby vacate his seat, unquote, 28. Quote, that no member of the Council of State, lowercase s, shall have a seat either in the Senate or House of Commons, unquote. 30, quote, that no secretary of this state, capital S, attorney general or clerk of any court of record shall have a seat in the Senate, House of Commons, or Council of State, lowercase s, unquote, see footnote 9. The king continued to rule through the Council of State, capital S, until several things were in place, namely his bank, his laws, his tradition. The king succeeded by the acceptance of the American people that they were free, along with the whole of our history not being taught in our schools. The next change to the Council of State, capital S, came at the conquest of this country. I refer to this in part one and in a country defeated in victory. Read this quote from the 1868 North Carolina Constitution. All right, so this is post-Civil War now. Article 3, Section 14. Quote, The Secretary of State, capital S, Auditor, Treasurer, Superintendent of Public Works, and Superintendent of Public Instruction, shall constitute ex officio the Council of State, capital S, who shall advise the governor in the execution of his office, and three of whom shall constitute a quorum. Their advice and proceedings in this capacity shall be entered in a journal to be kept for this purpose exclusively and signed by the members present from any part of which any member may enter his dissent. And such journal shall be placed before the General Assembly when called for by either house. The Attorney General shall be ex officio the legal advisor of the Executive Department, unquote, see footnote 10. All right, last paragraph for this installment of Bend Over America by James Montgomery. After the Civil War, the conquest of America, you see those that were allowed to be Council of State, capital S, were elected officials. Under the 1776 North Carolina Constitution, it was unlawful for these elected officials to be Council of State, capital S. Why? Because the king could not trust the common man to obey him now that they thought they were free. After the Civil War, the Council of State, capital S, was no longer needed to fulfill the public policy of the king. The Council of State, capital S, still exists today, but in a reduced capacity as far as the king goes. Now, he had the 14th Amendment, his lawyers in the government, his bankers in control of the government's money, and above all, greed that causes most in office to continue the status quo. All right, this was uh, part one of Bend Over America. <laughs> I love saying that. 
uh, by James Montgomery. I love saying it, saying it because there are so many people who, even if they get most of it, they get the NWO part of it, uh, but they just, they won't go there. They won't, even when it's staring them in the face, they won't accept certain things because they have been taught certain things that have become part of their faith, really, part of their religion. They, they have a faith in the founding fathers, even though the Bible says don't call people fathers, call no one father. They have a faith in the Constitution. They, they don't want to step outside of that religion, which they have somehow idiotically combined with their true religion of Jesus Christ and his word in the King James and Geneva Bibles. All right. Uh, all right. That was, that was bend over America, you constitutionalists. Take it, whether you like it or not. That's the way it is. You're enslaved. You always were enslaved. It's not that the government is operating outside of the law. The Constitution was a fraud. Things have only degraded since that fraud. You're right about that. You're right. We've lost our privileges that the Constitution gave us. That, that's, where, that's where we're at now. All right. So anyway, I'm Gordon Comstock. This has been the Ministry of Truth. Over and out. I'm Gordon Comstock. Time for part two of Bend Over America by James Montgomery. The Federal Reserve Taxes and Tax Court. What I will show you next will shock you. I made a brief mention of it in part one, that taxes paid in this country were under treaty to the King of England. How about if I told you that the law that created our taxes and this country's tax court go back in history to William the Conqueror? And to further help you understand the below definitions, Exchequer is the British branch of the Federal Reserve. This from Ballantine's Law Dictionary, Exchequer, quote, the English Department of Revenue, a very ancient court of record set up by William the Conqueror as part of the Ola Regia and intended principally to order the revenues of the crown and to recover the king's debts and duties. It was called Exchequer from the checked cloth resembling a chessboard which covers the table, unquote. This from Black's Law Dictionary, 4th edition, Exchequer. That department of the English government which has charge of the collection of the national revenue, the Treasury Department, unquote. This from Bouvier's Law Dictionary, 1914, Exchequer, quote, In English law, a department of the government which has the management of the collection of the king's revenue, unquote. This from Blackstone Commentaries, Book 3, page 1554, quote, Court of Exchequer, 56. The Court of Exchequer is inferior in rank not only to the Court of the King's Bench, 
but to the common pleas also. But I have chosen to consider it in this order on account of its double capacity as a court of law and a court of equity also. It is a very ancient court of record set up by William the Conqueror as a part of the Aula Regia, regulated and reduced to its present order by King Edward I, and intended principally to order the revenues of the crown and to recover the king's debts and duties. It is called the Exchequer, from the checked cloth resembling a chessboard, which covers the table there, and on which, when certain of the king's accounts are made up, the sums are marked and scored with counters. It consists of two divisions, the receipt of the exchequer, which manages the royal revenue, and with which these commentaries have no concern, and the court or judicial part of it, which is again subdivided into a court of equity and a court of common law, unquote. This from Ballantine's Law Dictionary, Court of Exchequer, quote, an English superior court with jurisdiction of matter of law and matters involving government revenue, unquote. This from Bouvier's Law Dictionary, 1914, Court of Exchequer, quote, a court for the correction and prevention of errors of law in the three superior common law courts of the kingdom. A court of exchequer chamber was first erected by statute 31, Edward III, C12, to determine causes upon writs of error from the common law side of the exchequer court. It consisted of the chancellor, treasurer, and the justices and other sage persons as to them seemeth. The judges were merely assistants. A second court of exchequer chamber was instituted by Statute 27, Elizabeth C. 8, consisting of the justices of the common pleas and the exchequer, or any six of them, which had jurisdiction in error of cases in the king's bench, in exchequer chamber, substituted in their place as an intermediate court of appeal between the three common law courts and parliament. It consisted of the judges of the two courts, which had not rendered the judgment in the court below. It is now merged in the High Court of Justice, unquote. It gets worse. Are you just a little ticked off, or maybe you are starting to question what you have been taught all these years? It's time to wake up, America. If you look at the Judiciary Act of 1789, I know most of you won't take the time to read it, you'll see that all district courts are Admiralty Courts. This is the King's Court of Commerce, in which he is the plaintiff, recovering damages done against him or what belongs to him. The following is from Blackstone Commentaries, Book 3, page 1554, quote. 
the equity court of the exchequer. 57. The court of equity is held in the exchequer chamber before the Lord Treasurer, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Chief Baron, and three Pusne ones. These Mr. Selden conjectures to have been anciently made out of such as were barons of the kingdom or parliamentary barons, and thence to have derived their name, which conjecture receives great strength from Bracton's explanation of Magna Carta, C14, which directs that the earls and barons be immersed by their peers, that is, says he, by the barons of the exchequer. The primary and original business of this court is to call the king's debtors to account by bill filed by the attorney general and to recover any lands, tenements, or hereditaments, any goods, chattels, or other profits or benefits belonging to the crown, so that by their original constitution, the jurisdiction of the courts of common pleas, king's bench, and exchequer was entirely separate and distinct, the common pleas being intended to decide all controversies between subject and subject the king's bench to correct all crimes and misdemeanors that amount to a breach of the peace. The king being then the plaintiff, as such offenses are in open derogation of the jura regalia, or regal rights, of his crown, and the exchequer to adjust and recover his revenue, wherein the king also is plaintiff, as the withholding and non-payment thereof is an injury to his jura fiscalia, or fiscal rights. But, as by a fiction, almost all sorts of civil actions are now allowed to be brought in the king's bench, in like manner, by another fiction, all kinds of personal suits may be prosecuted in the court of exchequer. For as all the officers and ministers of this court have, like those of other superior courts, the privilege of suing and being sued only in their own court, so exchequer are privileged to sue and implead all manner of persons in the same court of equity that they themselves are called into. They have likewise privilege to sue and implead one another or any stranger in the same kind of common law actions where the personality only is concerned as are prosecuted in the court of common pleas, unquote. The common law court of the exchequer, this quote will also be from Blackstone Commentaries, Book 3, 58, quote, this gives original to the common law part of their jurisdiction, which was established merely for the benefit of the king's accountants and is exercised by the barons only of the exchequer and not the treasurer or chancellor. The writ upon which the plaintiff suggests that he is the king's farmer or debtor 
and that the defendant hath done him the injury or damaged complained of, quo minus sufficient exist, by which he is the less able to pay the king his debt or rent. And these suits are expressly directed by what is called the Statute of Rutland to be confined to such matters only as specially concern the king or his ministers of the exchequer. And by the Articuli Supercartus, it is enacted that no common pleas be thenceforth holden in the exchequer contrary to the form of the great charter, but not by the suggestion of privilege any person may be admitted to sue in the exchequer as well as the king's accountant. The surmise of being debtor to the king is therefore become matter of form and mere words, of course, and the court is open to all the nation equally. The same holds with regard to the equity side of the court, for there any person may file a bill against another upon a bare suggestion that he is the king's accountant. But whether he is so or not is never controverted. In this court, on the non-payment of titles, in which case the surmise of being the king's debtor is no fiction, they being bound to pay him their first fruits and annual tenths. But the chancery has of late years obtained a large share in this business, unquote. All right, this next quote also will be from Blackstone Commentaries, Book 3, Definition of Legal Fiction. For a discussion of fictions in law, see Chapter 2 of Maine's Ancient Law and Pollock's Note D in his edition of the Ancient Law. Blackstone gives illustrations of legal fictions on the following pages. Okay, 43, 45, 153, 203 of this book. Mr. Justice Curtis, Jurisdiction of the United States, 2DED148, gives the following instance of a fiction in our practice. Quote, A suit by or against a corporation in its corporate name may be presumed to be a suit by or against citizens of the state which created the corporate body and no averment or denial to the contrary is admissible for the purpose of withdrawing the suit from the jurisdiction of a court of the United States. There is the Roman fiction. The court first decides the law presumes all the members are citizens of the state, which created the corporation, sound familiar, and then says, you shall not traverse that presumption. And that is the law now. Author's note, by your residence, you, listener, are incorporated. Under it, the courts of the United States constantly entertain suits by or against corporations. See the court case Muller versus Dows. It has been so frequently settled that there is not the slightest reason to suppose that it will ever depart from by the court. It has been repeated over and over again in subsequent decisions. 
and the Supreme Court seem entirely satisfied that it is the right ground to stand upon, and, as I am now going to state to you, they have applied it in some cases which go beyond, much beyond, these decisions to which I have referred. So that when a suit is to be brought in a court of the United States by or against a corporation, by reason of the character of the parties, you have only to say that this corporation, after naming it correctly, was created by a law of the state. And that is exactly the same in its consequences as if you could allege, and did allege, that the corporation was a citizen of that state. According to the present decisions, it is not necessary you should say that the members of that corporation are citizens of Massachusetts. They have passed beyond that. You have only to say that the corporation was created by a law of the state of Massachusetts and has its principal place of business in that state, and that makes it, for the purposes of jurisdiction, the same as if it were a citizen of that state, unquote. See, pound readings in Roman law. Oh, boy, folks. I recently learned that, uh, a couple of years ago, I learned that the first hundred years of the colonies in the United States, the, the formation of the colonies, in uh, New England, that uh, for that first century there, did you know that lawyers were outlawed? The, you, there was no such thing as lawyer, they, lawyers. They were banished. They were prevented from settling, prevented from practicing their shenanigans by uh, writing legalese like this and entrapping people with it. I guess the colonists who had fled England... Those folks, they, uh, they had seen enough of what, uh, what lawyers can do with their duplicity, and they wanted no part of lawyers. And then what happens? A few more, after that first initial century in New England, the bad guys come in, okay? And they naturally, like scum in a pond, they rise to the top, the lawyers come in, they, they come in and parasitize the colonies, they become, they become what? They become the founding fathers. And they're all of a sudden, lawyers are respected again by the time of the American Revolution. And you have a bunch of lawyers who sold us out, who met in secret and wrote this corporate charter, this backdoor Masonic deal with the King of England, and his banking bosses, and they sold the common colonists out. And we're still sold out as a result today. Back to uh, James Montgomery. Combine this with what I said earlier. Now we're back to Montgomery's words. Combine this with what I said earlier concerning power of the treaty and its creation of the corporate state. Capital S. And you now know why you are not allowed to challenge residence or subjection in state courts, capital S. And because of the treaty, residence in the state, capital S, is synonymous with residence in the district. 
I know this puts a sour taste in your mouth, because it sure does mine, but that is the condition we now find ourselves in. The only way I, James Montgomery, see to change it is to change the treaty and reinforce the original Declaration of Independence. I wonder what he means by that. But this would meet severe objection on the part of the international bankers and, of course, the king's heirs in England. And most Americans, even if they were aware of this information, would have no stomach for the turmoil this would cause. Still a little fuzzy on what has taken place. The word exchequer is still used today. In Britain, the exchequer is the Federal Reserve, the same as our Federal Reserve. They just changed the name here, as they have done many things to cloud what is taking place, hoping no one would catch on. Who wrote the Federal Reserve Act and put it in place in this country? Bankers from the Bank of England with their counterparts in New York. Said Congressman McFadden in the Congressional Record, June 14, 1934, quote, I hope that is the case, but I may say to the gentleman that during the sessions of this economic conference in London, there is another meeting taking place in London. We were advised by reports from London last Sunday of the arrival of George L. Harrison, governor of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and we were advised that accompanying him was Mr. Crane, the deputy governor, and James Warburg of the Kuhn Loeb Banking family of New York and Hamburg, Germany, and also Mr. O.M.W. Sprague, recently in the pay of Great Britain as chief economic and financial advisor of Mr. Norman, governor of the Bank of England, and now supposed to represent our treasury. These men landed in England and rushed to the Bank of England for a private conference, taking their luggage with them before even going to their hotel. We know this conference has been taking place for the past three days. Behind closed doors in the Bank of England, with these gentlemen meeting with heads of the Bank of England and the Bank for International Settlements of Basel, Switzerland, and the head of the Bank of France, Mr. Marais. They are discussing war debts. They are discussing stabilization of exchanges and the Federal Reserve System. I may say to the members of the House, the Federal Reserve System, headed by George L. Harrison, is our premier, who is dealing with debts behind the closed doors of the Bank of England. And the United States Treasury is there, represented by O.M.W. Sprague, who until the last ten days was the representative of the Bank of England, and by Mr. James Warburg, who is the son of the principal author of the Federal Reserve Act. Many things are being settled behind the closed doors of the Bank of England by this group. No doubt this group were pleased to hear that yesterday the Congress passed amendments to the Federal Reserve Act and that the President signed the bill, which turns over to the Federal Reserve System the complete total financial resources of money and credit in the United States. Apparently, the domination 
and control of the International Banking Group is being strengthened. That again from Congressman McFadden in 1934, who, you guessed it, was later assassinated. What else does the exchequer do? The government, Congress, puts up bonds, bills of credit, on the international market that the Federal Reserve, or exchequer, prints fiat money for, for which the government, Congress, is the guarantor for. Read the following quote. Exchequer bills, bills of credit issued by authority of parliament. This from Bouvier's Law Dictionary, 1914. Quote, they constitute the medium of transaction of business between the Bank of England and the government. The exchequer bills contain a guarantee from government which secures the holders against loss by fluctuation. Unquote. Also, reread my essay, A Country Defeated in Victory. To whom do you think the national debt is owed? If that's not bad enough, the bond indebtedness allowed the king to foreclose on his colony when it was time for the one world government. The king slash bankers caused us to reorganize under bankruptcy. The Bank of England allowed the United States to use you and I, our labor that is, for collateral and all the property in America. Read the following quote. This from Congressman Lemke. Quote, This nation is bankrupt. Every state in this union is bankrupt. Capital S state. The people of the United States as a whole are bankrupt. The public and private debts of this nation, which are evidenced by bonds, mortgages, notes, and other written instruments to about $250 billion, and it is estimated that there is about $50 billion of which there is no record, making in all about $300 billion of public and private debts. The total physical cash value of all the property in the United States is now estimated at about $70 billion. That is more than it would bring if sold at public auction. In this, we do not include debts or the evidence of debts, such as bonds, mortgages, and so forth. These are not physical property. They will have to be paid out of the physical property. How are we going to pay 300 billion with only 70 billion? Unquote. That again from the congressional record from a Congressman Lemke from March 3rd, same date, 1934. And yeah, that's 1933 was the date where uh, FDR declared us uh, bankrupt and declared the, 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 the common American, the U.S. citizens, uh, the slaves, declared us enemies of the state. And uh, we really, the, that was the final official officializing of making us uh, brick makers for Pharaoh, really. And uh, what James Montgomery is telling us is uh, that made it official also that uh, we were uh, sold back to the King of England. That, that was the final stage of it. 
and uh, he owns us now. Yes, Master. That's it. That's where we're at. This debt was more than could be paid as of 1934. This, of course, caused the declared bankruptcy by FDR. Now the national debt is over $12 billion. I wonder if he means more than that. The government only tells you about $5 billion. They don't tell you about the corporate debt, which America is also guarantor for. Add to that the personal debt, you know, credit cards and home loans, and it approaches $20 billion. That's true. Oh, I'm reading it wrong, folks. <laughs> Thank you. James Montgomery just clarifies it here. That's a trillion for those of you that misread the number of zeros, like I just did. Mix this with a super-inflated stock market and a huge trade deficit, and that is what brings you to understand my title for this paper, Bend Over, America. What could possibly be the purpose of the international bankers allowing our nation to overextend so badly and not yet cut us off. When, back in 1934, they could have legally seized the whole country. We are being used for the purpose of the international bankers to this day. And that purpose is loaning money to third world countries to enslave them as we are, to colonize the world, the whole world this time, for Britain, and to use our military machine, like Master Blaster in Thunderdome, yep, Montgomery's got it, to control unruly countries and to collect the king's debts. America is the insensate brute, the, the muscle, the big guy, and uh, the midget riding our backs, just like in Thunderdome, Master Blaster, the midget is Britain. They're the brains, we're the brawn, and uh, we're going to get it. Boy. Thankfully, the Lord's coming back, and uh, they're all going to get it. There will soon be a United Nations personal income tax for the whole world. The end purpose of the international bankers, just like David Astle said in the Babylonian woe, they were dreaming of it even back during Egypt and Assyria and Babylon time. The end purpose of these international bankers is a one-world government, with England as the center of government and the international bankers calling the shots. Don't despair. All these things have to come to pass. I used to think, what if? Jesus' word says these things have to take place for the world government to come to pass. I am going to share a dream I had. July 1992, at the risk of being ridiculed, says James Montgomery, I told my friend, who was mentioned in the dream about it, told him the next day. At that time, neither of us understood the dream, about a month later, I started to understand when I began learning about admiralty law and where our admiralty law came from. 
As time has passed, I have come to understand the dream because of further information coming to light, such as the information contained in Part 1 and now Part 2, which you are reading. I knew when I woke up that the dream was not the normal nonsense you can sometimes experience in a dream. And I might add, I dream very seldom. After having this dream, I was given the desire to write down and pass along the information that has been brought to me via, I think, the Holy Spirit. The information has defined the dream, not the other way around. Here is my dream. July, 1992. A record of a dream I had. I was what appeared to be hovering above the below scene, and it appeared to be three-dimensional, like as if the scene had texture. It was also in color, with the smell of war in the air. I awoke at 5 a.m. and was wide awake and immediately wrote down what took place in this dream. Here goes. A friend and I were among thousands of Christians that were massed together, awaiting execution. I saw untold thousands of Christians executed before us. There were many troops guarding us. These troops were British. They had on Revolutionary War clothing and were carrying the old-style muskets. The people that went before us to be executed went voluntarily. They went out of some false sense of duty to this envisioned government that was British-controlled. These people were in ranks, waiting calmly to be led away to their deaths. While standing in the ranks, my friend and I kept looking at one another, but we were separated by what seemed to be hundreds of people. Just before they called our numbers, they led us away and untold thousands, under guard to return later. I asked some of the people in the ranks to step aside so I could get next to my friend. I told him that while I was in the ranks awaiting death, the Holy Spirit told me not to listen to their reasons for death, but to consider his reasons, the Holy Spirit's, for the sanctity of life, and that we were to do whatever it took to stay alive and defeat the beast. I saw myself tapping my friend on the head and told him this was an example of how the Holy Spirit related to me, that he wanted our attention. The Holy Spirit said we were to go and do the Holy Spirit's bidding, no matter where it led us, and that we would be protected. <sighs> to get into 144,000 stuff here. Uh, we both looked at each other and decided we could not die voluntarily as the other Christians. We looked at each other and said, this is crazy. My friend said, this is voluntary, just like being a 14th Amendment citizen. We then walked out of the ranks, right in front of the British guards, unseen, and we escaped. Keep in mind, you cannot control your dreams. Does God Almighty still communicate through dreams? The Bible makes it clear he does. Whether this dream is a product of uncontrolled imagination while asleep or insight from the Holy Spirit, I will only say, let history decide.
because he means future history. I am satisfied of the dream's origin because of its fulfillment through recent knowledge that wasn't known at that time. And then he invites you guys to uh, check out his footnotes, which are lengthy. Uh, but he, it's very, very telling. All of these footnotes, they just confirm. Confirm and, and irrefutably confirm, folks, when you look at this. All that he has said. All of it. And so we will close it here, setting aside the, the voluminous footnotes. Wow. But that was the actual essay part of... You ready? You ready? Are you ready, all you constitutionalists out there? Are you ready? Here goes. Bend over, America. You too, constitutionalists. Pull your head out. Do not stop equating man's law with the Lord's law. Knock it off. You should know better than that. I'm Gordon Comstock. The author had not. I'm Gordon Comstock. This has been the Ministry of Truth. This was Bend Over America by James Montgomery. We're going to get into uh, Chapter 3 of James Montgomery's The United States is Still a British Colony. Chapter 1 was eponymously called uh, The United States is Still a British Colony. Chapter 2 was called Bend Over America. And now Chapter 3 is Will the real government please stand up? Here we go. After writing British Colony, parts one and two, I was amazed how some people react when confronted with information that goes against their prior programming. It is as if to even consider it was a threat to their mental well-being. They were going to deny any truth that threatens their belief structure. The good news is those with such a reaction were of the minority. This is promising because it shows Americans can still think past years of incomplete teaching concerning our history. Those in the negative believe the information had to be bogus and they could not believe the government could wrong them. So this third part is for them. To show them that government has and does lie to them and violates their trust on major issues. As always, this information and supporting documents are given so the reader can form their own opinion. Other writers, I will mention one since he uses a pen name, the informer, has also done extensive research on this subject and has been forced to come to the same conclusion. Check out the latest work of the informer, his new book called The New History of America. The information the informer and I have found is so clear and undeniable, even the doubting Thomases will have to face reality. Not to make us right, but for America to become aware of lost history. I will begin with the touchstone of the Patriot community, the 14th Amendment. Everyone knows about the citizenship issue. I raised another issue concerning the fourth section of the 14th Amendment in British Colony, Part 1, and issues regarding Section 3 in court documents found in footnote 13. 
Doubting Thomases think this is a conspiracy theory. In the new propaganda movie called Conspiracy Theory with Mel Gibson, so this was written back in 97 when that movie came out, the establishment wants you to think that anyone that believes there is someone behind the scenes calling the shots is mentally unbalanced. Thanks, Mel. What the doubting Thomases do not realize is this is a big puzzle and is hard to recognize and can be incorrectly viewed. The biggest problem is it can be put together more than one way, totally changing its appearance and outcome. The doubting Thomases may say, how is it that you think you have the correct pieces? My answer is, I shoot a lot of archery. In archery, you shoot for the bullseye, not the less important areas outside the bullseye. You have to stay focused on what are the core issues, not the side issues, the collateral issues where valuable time is lost. I conduct my research in this way. Two, I rely on God Almighty to keep me pointed in the right direction. Three, I always tell you not to take my word without checking the subject out for yourself. Most people, if plagued with a recurring headache, take a pain reliever and the headache appears to go away, when in fact all you have done is deal with a symptom that caused the headache. You have not dealt with the actual cause. Many patriots today are dealing with the symptoms, like taxes, driving versus traveling, and the zip code, etc., etc. All are important issues and have their place, but they are not the root cause of the problem. Until the cause of the affliction is researched, exposed, and then removed, nothing will change. The lawful, de jure, United States government, uh, lowercase u in United which was created by the 1787 Constitution-slash-Treaty between the states, was made null and void by the fraudulent Congress that passed the 14th Amendment. This is a bold and broad statement, but I will prove it. The following quote is from the court case, Diet versus Turner. Quote, When, therefore, Texas became one of the United States, capital U, capital S, she entered into an indissoluble relation. All the obligations of perpetual union and all the guarantees of republican government in the union attached at once to the state, capital S. The act which consummated her admission into the union was something more than a compact. It was the incorporation of a new member into the political body, and it was final. The union between Texas and other states was as complete, as perpetual, and as indissoluble as the union between the original states. There was no place for reconsideration or revocation except through revolution or through consent of the states." Unquote. The following quote is also from Diet versus Turner. Quote, Considered, therefore, as transactions under the Constitution, the ordinance of secession, adopted by the Convention and ratified by a majority 
of the citizens of Texas and all the acts of her legislature intended to give effect to that ordinance were absolutely null. They were utterly without operation in law. The obligations of the state, capital S, as a member of the union, capital U, and of every citizen of the state, capital S, as a citizen of the United States, capital U, capital S, remained perfect and unimpaired. It certainly follows that the state, capital S, did not cease to be a state, capital S, nor her citizens to be citizens of the Union, capital U. If this were otherwise, the state, capital S, must have become foreign and her citizens foreigners. The war must have ceased to be a war for the suppression of rebellion and must have become a war for conquest of subjugation, unquote. The southern states could not lawfully cede from the Union, and southern states is in caps there, could not lawfully cede from the Union without the other states, capital S, being in agreement. In the last sentence, you will notice the war was either a war of rebellion or the states, capital S, were made foreign and conquest and military rule took place during the Civil War. This is very important because of what took place next and what took place after the Civil War and March 9th, 1933. March 2nd, 1867, President Andrew Johnson declared the rebellion to be over and the Southern States, capital S, to be once again part of the Union, capital U, before the 13th and 14th Amendment were even passed. So the states were not foreign. They did not have to be readmitted. They picked up in Congress where they left off with the same state governments, capital S, they had before the rebellion. If the Southern States, capital S, had ceded from the Union, capital U, without sanction by all the states, capital S, their legislative acts would have been null and void. In other words, if a state or the federal government, the state is in captive, violates their corporate charter, capital C, it makes any subsequent law null and void. The following information should upset you greatly, and at the same time it should amaze you that Americans are totally unaware of this information. How is it in the so-called freest country in the world that the nation that prides itself on our history, could you have 200 plus million people ignorant of the truth and that care so little about the destruction of our country? The information I am sharing with you is purposely not taught in the public schools. Why? It will become clear to you that if the government taught this in the public schools, it would cause the rebirth of American patriotism. Americans would demand our former 
overthrown Republican form of government and that the laws of God Almighty be adhered to. We were promised in the Constitution a Republican form of government. And Benjamin Franklin, when asked, said, you have been given a Republican form of government if you can keep it. That's a paraphrase. By laziness and greed of the American people over the years, our lawful government was stolen, but not without our help. The Civil War was fought to free the slaves and reunite the Union, or so we have been told by selected history, taught by and through the government. The slaves just changed masters, as I have said before in other research papers. And the white people enfranchised, incorporated, and sold themselves into slavery. Whites, along with blacks, were made legal fictions so they could be owned and taxed by the king. However, the only way this could be done is by destroying the Constitution, but they had to do it in a way that no one would recognize its destruction or care, thanks to the offered benefits. Now, the proof. December 8, 1863, President Lincoln declared by proclamation amnesty and reconstruction for the Southerners so that they could be readmitted into the Union. See footnote 7. This action, along with what Lincoln was doing with the money, is why Lincoln had to be killed. The South could not be allowed back into the Union without their enfranchisement. Compare the readmittance oath in President Lincoln's proclamation of 1863 to the following oath requirement required by Congress under the Reconstruction Acts. See footnotes 3, 4, 5, and 6. The following quote is from the Reconstruction Act of March 23, 1867. It's a supplement to the Reconstruction Act of March 2nd, 1867. Wow. Quote, An act to provide for the more efficient government of the rebel states, capital S, passed March 2nd, 1867, shall cause a registration to be made of the male citizens of the United States, capital U, capital S, 21 years of age and upwards, resident in each county or parish in the state, capital S, or states, capital S, included in his district, which registration shall include only those persons who are qualified to vote for delegates by the act aforesaid, and who shall have taken and subscribed the following oath or affirmation. I, blank, do solemnly swear or affirm in the presence of Almighty God that I am a citizen of the state, capital S, of blank, that I have resided in said state, capital S, for blank months, next preceding this day. And now I reside in the county of blank or the parish of blank in said state, capital S, as the case may be, 
that I am 21 years old, that I have not been disenfranchised for participation in any rebellion or civil war against the United States, capital U, capital S, nor for felony committed against the laws of any state, capital S, or of the United States, capital U, capital S, that I have never been a member of any state, capital S, legislature, nor held any executive or judicial office in any state, capital S, and afterwards engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States, capital U, capital S, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, that I have never taken an oath as a member of Congress of the United States, capital U, capital S, or as an officer of the United States, capital U, capital S, or as a member of any state legislature, capital S, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, capital S, to support the Constitution of the United States, capital U, capital S, and afterwards engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States, capital U, capital S, or given aid and or comfort to the enemies thereof, that I will faithfully support the Constitution and obey the laws of the United States, capital U, capital S, and will, to the best of my ability, encourage others so to do, so help me God, which, which oath or affirmation may be administered by any registering officer, unquote. You will note that in the above oath, Congress creates legal residence for anyone taking the oath, and that this is done by registering to vote and made a requirement in order to vote. The same legal disability still takes place today when you register to vote. Today, you still have voting districts in each county in America. You will notice also that the oath makes you declare that you were not disenfranchised by taking part in the Civil War, which means that before the Civil War, Americans were franchised citizens or incorporated. I covered this in Part 1 by the states, capital S, adoption of the Constitution. Those that lived in the states, capital S, became legal residents, incorporated slash enfranchised, instead of sui juris free men which was granted to them by the Declaration of Independence and in North Carolina for North Carolinians. This was reaffirmed by the 1776 North Carolina Constitution, see British Colony Part 2, entitled Bend Over America. Also, you will see in the following oaths where the language came from. For the creation of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, this language was also used in the 14th Amendment oath you just read, wherein it declared that elected officials, judges, legislators, and police, etc., cannot give aid and comfort to the enemy. The enemy is anyone unincorporated, because the king cannot legally tax you without using the force of admiralty. The enemy is also anyone that refuses to swear the oath to the de facto government for the above reasons.
The following is the oath given to those that wanted to serve in the United States government, capital U, capital S. An act to prescribe an oath of office, July 2nd, 1862. Quote, be it enacted that hereafter every person elected or appointed to any office of honor or profit under the government of the United States, capital U, capital S, either in the civil, military, or naval departments of the public service, excepting the President of the United States, capital U, capital S, shall, before entering upon the duties of such office, and before being entitled to any of the salary or other emoluments thereof, take and subscribe the following oath of affirmation. I, blank, do solemnly swear or affirm that I have never voluntarily borne arms against the United States, capital U, capital S, since I have been a citizen thereof, that I have voluntarily given no aid, counsel, countenance, or encouragement to persons engaged in armed hostility thereto, that I have never sought nor accepted nor attempted to exercise the functions of any office whatever under any authority or pretended authority in hostility to the United States, capital U, capital S, that I have not yielded a voluntary support to any pretended government, authority, power, or constitution within the United States, capital U, capital S, hostile or inimical thereto, and I do further swear or affirm that, to the best of my knowledge and ability, I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States, capital U, capital S, against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter, so help me God. Which said oath, so taken and signed, shall be preserved among the files of the court, house of Congress, or department to which the said office may appertain. And any person who shall falsely take the said oath shall be guilty of perjury, and on conviction, in addition to the penalties now prescribed for that offense, shall be deprived of his office and rendered incapable forever after of holding any place in office under the United States, capital U, capital S, unquote. When the war was over, President Andrew Johnson declared the states, capital S, readmitted to the Union and hostilities to be over. Furthermore, on April 2nd, 1866, President Andrew Johnson issued a proclamation that, quote, the insurrection which heretofore existed in the states of Georgia
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.